this week on Punch Mountain. I always thought I would be a good assassin, but then I saw how much dairy they drink and there's no way I could do that. Grab two straws because we're watching Gunpowder Milkshake. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake and I'm joined as always by your podcast mountain lion, Mr. David Hara. David, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Meow, meow. Rawr, rawr. <laughs> Mac Blake, the man whose milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. Is that still a timely reference? I think so. Sure. Let me look up who sang that song. Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> David, speaking of milkshakes, we're talking about the movie Gunpowder Milkshake on this episode. Did you, did you watch it? I did, I did. I had to. It's for the episode. Yeah, this was... Uh, this was going to be your pick. This was your blue shell pick for the last inventory episode. So I guess let me, let's start off with you, Mac. What uh, what were you thinking when you picked this one? <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, David, just to clarify something, was this movie released in theaters in the United States? I believe it had like a one weekend limited release, but uh, no, this is considered a Netflix release primarily. Okay. Yes. So this movie is a Netflix release uh, starring Karen Gillan. She plays Nebula in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie series. But yet, David, sometimes at night when I am tired, I just want to watch something fun. Uh, a lot of the time, something fun equals just like an action movie, right? And it's like, man, uh, we just watched Seven Samurai. Uh, that movie made me uh, question aspects of humanity, right? I-, I don't want that this week. I don't want to think about nothing. So I was like, you know what? Something about Gunpowder Milkshake, it stuck with me and made me want to see it even after it has been a year since it's been out. And you're like, well, Mac, why is that a novel thing? Because, David, it's a Netflix movie. And even though it's like a fun action movie that seems kind of just like an easy way to spend an evening, Netflix movies, they for, uh, sometimes they just they don't feel like real movies. Like it pops up on that menu screen for like one weekend and you never see it again. Someone described it like when you're watching like a movie and in the background they have ads for like fake movies. All those Netflix movies feel like fake movies, uh, which I, I can't disagree with. Sometimes you'll turn on Netflix and you're like, oh, this looks like a good movie. Oh, Boyd Holbrook's in it. And then a week later, if someone put a gun to your head, there's not a chance in hell you could remember the title. But David, do you have any history with Gunpowder Milkshake? This was a movie I was looking forward to the weekend that it was big on Netflix, and then it disappeared. So it sat in my queue for a while, and then once we started up this show, it started to kind of creep up in my mind, like, oh, maybe I'll get to that. We talked about doing it and we kept talking about it and kept talking about it, kept talking about it. Until finally one day I was like, screw it. I'm just going to watch this thing. And so when you did pick it for a blue shell pick, I was secretly very giddy inside because I enjoyed the heck out of this movie. I was looking forward to watching it again. I was looking forward to watching it with you and I was looking forward to talking about it, especially when you look at the cast and not only the cast, when you look at the writer director, this is going to be a movie by uh, Nava Popusharo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. After the seven samurai episode, I don't have my confidence in pronouncing anything anymore. But this is a guy who wrote and directed a movie about, gosh, what was it, 2013, 2014? It was a movie called Big Bad Wolves. It was an Australian movie, uh, kind of a crime thriller. And I remember loving that movie. I can't recall it too much. I remember it was brutal, and I remember it was super satisfying. And I was really excited to see what this guy did next. And this is the first thing he's done since then. So eight years go by, and this guy goes from, I don't think it was his debut, but it, it was a brutal early movie to this movie that is so crisp and so polished and so fun. I'm excited to see more of what 
Navo Papa Shadow does. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Mac, what are your first thoughts going into Gunpowder Milkshake? Well, I remember seeing the trailer whenever it was released, and it felt a little too John Wick for me at the time. Like, in the, I think the trailer introduced, like, oh, there's another secret organization of assassins. And I'm like, another one? Haven't we just been doing that for a while? But David, now that I've seen the movie, I, could, I can report that it is a very fun movie. The action scenes in this thing, they build really well. And David, this is a first for me in terms of Punch Mountain movies, because you, how many times do you watch a movie before we do a, a podcast? I'll, I'll watch it at least twice. This is the first time I've watched it twice. I started watching it, and I just was a little tired, and I was like, I don't want to fucking take notes. The second watch, though, I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to watch this thing now. And I did get a greater appreciation of the fights, of the action in this movie with the second watch, specifically the way they kind of like build. And, and we'll definitely get into that as we talk about it. Uh, this movie, though, I, I will say overall, the, its main problem is that it's exactly what I wanted it to be because I wanted like an action movie I didn't have to necessarily think about. And that's, I think it's exactly kind of what this movie is. But this definitely has some highlights, and I had some fun watching it. I'm going to have some fun talking about it. But David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Gunpowder Milkshake on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we shall do some quickly provided answers. David, is Gunpowder Milkshake related to John Wick? Yes, she's his sister. Mac, what is Gunpowder Milkshake based off of? Well, David, it's the true story of Nancy Pelosi's childhood. Isn't that interesting? David, will there be a Gunpowder Milkshake 2? There will, just as soon as we figure out where to put the two. Right now, my money's on Gunpowder Milk 2, Haley. Mac, what makes Gunpowder Milkshake rated R? Well, David, because this movie actually passes the Bechdel test, the patriarchy immediately doesn't think that uh, children under 17 should watch this movie. They don't want these women getting ideas, talking to each other, and murdering people. Boo! David, before we get into the story of a woman who was trained since her teenage years to be an assassin, let's check in with two friends trained since their teenage years to make the most of all-you-can-eat pizza buffets. That's us, David. We're those friends. It's a friendship check-in. David Hada, how are you? I'm doing all right, my fellow CC's wrecker. As we're recording this, this is going to be the start of my weekend. So as soon as we're done here, I've got a chocolate bar that I'm going to eat half of. I've got uh, two movies that I'm going to start and not finish at least one of them tonight. Uh, So I'm looking forward to my weekend. How how are you doing, Mac Blake? David, occasionally people will come up to me in person and they will say nice things about this podcast. And I definitely want to uh, thank these people on air, but my memory is trash, right? And so at a couple uh, live comedy shows, specifically Master Pancake ones, some people have come up, they've said something nice. They go, oh, thank you. What's your name? And then as soon as they leave, I furiously scribble down their name so I can thank them. Anyway, I found some notes I just shoved in my backpack. And the first note I wrote down was Josh, who said something nice uh, about, he said he liked Punch Mountain, and he said the Roadhouse episode was his favorite. Yay! Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of episodes since then, Josh. So that really, <laughs> real backhand compliment. And then I looked for the other note in my backpack, and it's from uh, a guy named Josh. And I was like, wait, hold on. Are there just that many Josh Punch Mountain fans? Are these two Joshes? Or is this the same Josh who knows my memory sucks and is like gaslighting me? I don't, I don't know. Or do we need a Josh Mountain? Well, if there's a Josh Mountain, the guy, the Josh who did not specify a favorite episode, would he be higher or lower? Um, probably, well, I don't know. Probably lower, I guess. Anyway, thank you, Josh or Joshes. I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to say Joshes. It's not an uncommon name, David. There could be more than one Josh who likes this podcast. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, Punch Mountain is a very Josh-centric <laughs> podcast. Well, enough of this just Josh and <laughs> oh, shoot me in the face. David, is it time to do this thing? Grab a pint of ice cream and a pint of milk. We're going in. 
All right, David, before we start talking about this movie, for people who have not seen it or for people who saw it not too long ago, but to level set, David, could you read the back of the box description, even though this movie had no box at, at any point? I, actually, you know what? I think it might have had a Blu-ray release. It had an international one that I have not been able to track down yet. But uh, if, you, uh, if you don't remember this movie, uh, get ready to get your memory jogged. To protect an eight-year-old girl, a dangerous assassin reunites with her mother and her lethal associates to take down a ruthless crime syndicate and its army of henchmen. 2021, 114 minutes, directed by Nabo Popushado, rated R. You know, again, I can't fault them for that. It does seem like a description you'd read while in, in an inescapable scroll loop on Netflix. So I was like, what am I, what should I watch? But yes, it does not sell this movie at all, of course. At least it talked about the movie. I remember RRR was just like, a hit in 47 countries. And I'm like, I hope those countries are right. Yeah, I guess they're really leaning on... It depends on what graphic the algorithm decided to show you in this. Because, you know, like if the graphic showed like uh, Karen Gillan looking cool with a gun or Michelle Yao, which is what popped up on mine. But I, I wonder if there's a weekend where the algorithm was like, hey, uh, let's put Paul Giamatti in the uh, little graphic there on the Netflix menu. See if any Giamatti heads are like, what's Gunpowder Milkshake? <laughs> I, I imagine P Paul Giamatti fans kind of sound like him. I feel like over the years they've adopted uh, like the palette just adjusts to sound like Paul Giamatti. I watched the uh, HBO maxi series, John Adams, starring Paul Giamatti. And for one week after, I could do a dynamite Giamatti. Oh, just could crush a Giamatti. And then, you know, it's like uh, I didn't practice that instant around practicing my Giamatti and can't really do a, a Paul Giamatti impression. But the fact that I could at some point haunts me. I'm not going to lie to you, Mac. That was one of the, my favorite weeks of my life was the <laughs> week you did a Paul Giamatti impression. All right, David, how does this movie start? Uh, we're going to begin with a moody synth score and some voiceover narration from Sam, played by Karen Gillan. An assassin who works for the firm, a cabal of powerful old men who secretly control everything. There's a group of men called the firm. They've been running things for a long, long time. And when they need someone to clean up their mess, they send me. When one of Sam's assignments goes wrong, she meets with the firm's head of HR, Nathan, played by professional things-aren't-going-my-way actor Paul Giamatti. The two meet at a diner that may or may not be what it seems, unless it seems like a meeting place for criminals. We learn from flashback that Sam used to come to this diner with her mother Scarlett, played by Lena Headey, who split for mysterious and criminal reasons over 15 years ago. David, on a podcast ad, I heard her name pronounced as Lena Headey, and I looked it up, and I think it is Headey. I think we are correct in saying Hetty. So I just want to uh, cover my bases and and say I, I did look into it. Uh, and whoever did that podcast ad, I hope you got fired. I hope your family is starving on the street because you didn't look up how to pronounce Lena Hetty's name correct. But if for some reason we are wrong, David, in that case, just uh, I'll just say our bad. Deny, deny, deny. I'm bailing out of everything. Time to start gaslighting. No, I said it right. You heard it wrong. So how are you feeling about this, uh, this start, Mac? I like the synth music. It's a... Okay, start, because we get like a little glimpse of action right away. Get like a little glimpse of like the current assignment that Sam is on. And then after a quick uh, shot of her going about her business, you know, post-assignment, then we're, we go right to a flashback. But David, this um, the first thing she's doing after her, uh, assuming she just murdered a bunch of people, is we see Sam back in her apartment and she's like eating some cereal and she like looks down at her arm. There's like some blood coming out of her pajamas. The next thing we know, she's like, you know, sewing her stuff up, threading stitches through her own arm, just like Dalton. And at first I was like, wait, she didn't notice that she was shot? But in my mind, David, I think she did notice she was shot. She's not like a robot. Maybe she like put a Band-Aid on it or something. She's like, oh, I, it won't need stitches. 
and like bled through the bandage. I'm already I'm already doing a little bit of work for this movie because this movie does not explain everything. I liked it, but it didn't heighten it. It didn't go any place with it because you know, right away, this movie's trying to establish, oh, Sam is a badass. She's calm and she's cool. She's so cool, in fact, that she won't even notice when she gets nicked by a gunshot. Keep that going. Like, have her going to Starbucks the next day, and that wound is just opening up and bleeding all over the place. But she's so calm and cool, she still doesn't even notice it. Like, goes on for days and days. But Dave, did you notice anything weird about Sam's apartment here? The weird part was that I wasn't living in it. She's living my dream life. Like after she goes on this assassin's job, she's in her pajamas, she's eating cereal, but her fridge, when she goes to get the milk from the cereal, I noticed that cause she opens it up and like, you know, I, I'm just scanning the fridge for, for clues as to how she lives, you know, an empty Chinese container of anything spoiled, that sort of thing. But all I'm noticing are pints of milk and pints of ice cream. And I'm like, what on earth is... And I completely forgot, that's the name of the movie. It's Gunpowder Milkshake. Of course, there's going to be milkshakes, you moron. Yeah, David, but look, I'm an asshole, right? I'm now going to be looking at that like, what does that say about the character? Because I cannot turn that off. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, this character who still kind of eats like a kid, they haven't really matured. Did something happen in their youth to stunt their growth? Are we going to get a <laughs> flashback that tells us about this? We are, David. Paul Giamatti's like, maybe at the diner. We see 15 years earlier, we get a flashback. And we see young Sam sitting in this diner. And then she's joined by her mom, played by Lena Headey. But what's going on? This diner's a little, something's up with this diner. Something is up with this diner. In fact, Lena Headey walks in and she's greeted by Rose. And Rose is played by Joanna Bob. Rose is going to be the head waitress at the diner. And she greets everybody coming in. She greets Lena Headey. She asks her, can I lighten your load for you? And we learn later on, or we learn within the next few minutes that she's asking, hey, do you have any weapons on you? I'll take your weapons if you if you have any. So I'm wondering, is this diner going to be John Wick adjacent? Is this universe going to be John Wick adjacent where we have another network of secret buildings and secret networks and staffs of people who all operate under assassin rules? Yeah, I'm right there with you. There's a lot of infrastructure for assassins in this movie just like there is in the John Wick movies. I think that turned me off about this at first because I just was like, I, if I want that, I already got that. Uh, now that I'm in this movie, I'm, I'm all right with it, sure. So Lena Headey sits down and her character's name is Scarlet. And Scarlet's daughter, Sam, is like, you're late. You're three hours late and you're bleeding. And Scarlet's like, I was killing some people, doing my job, ain't no thing. Scarlet asks her daughter, Sam, she goes, did you bring it? What's she talking about? So Sam slides over a book. I can't remember the book. They all mean something. We'll find out later. But she opens up the book and there's a little cutout where there a gun would go and some ammunition. That's really cool. You know, you establish that, oh, you know, this is what the world is. It, it smuggles weapons in through books. That's very cool. But we also just established this diner has a very strict no weapons policy. So for Scarlett to ask her daughter to bring this book that has a gun in it, we're already establishing this is a very shitty mom. Because Sam could get in trouble with his diner and not be allowed to dine here anymore. But this diner, David, it has a very staged feel to it. Like if you look through the windows, this thing is not in real life. There's not like a, a city or suburb outside of it. There's kind of like this like way too beautiful sky. This definitely feels like it takes place on like a set in a soundstage. I don't mind it at this point because I was like, you know what? This movie kind of has an over the top, very dramatic air. And if this is the set design kind of leaning into it, then I'm all right with it. And then Scarlett asks to go to the bathroom, but then Dave in the diner, some bad dudes show up. Bum, 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 bum. And these bad dudes, uh, one of them sits down opposite Sam, and this is a bad guy, and he's also a bad actor doing a very bad Russian accent. 
And he's like, you know, where is your mother? Like, uh, not not too good. When this character started talking, I was like, I can't wait for Mac to do an impression of this character on the show. It just, it just felt right up your alley. It was like, uh, your mother, she looks like you, except she is taller and more stabby. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of a funny line because later on we see her weapon of choice are stabby guns. When I heard this guy's accent, I was like, oh, is this, can anyone just be in a movie now? Like, is that how it works? <laughs> it just felt like, like, hey, you're Russian. And the actor's like, oh, nobody told me that. You've seen Boris and Natasha from uh, Rocky and Boeckle. Just do that. Where is mother? Like, it just, it was not great. But then Sam's like, my mommy told me not to talk to strangers, which I know that she was trying to like be dismissive of this dude and kind of play up the fact that she was a kid. But anytime someone like talks like they're a very young child, it just creeps me the fuck out. But then this Russian guy pulls out a knife and holds it to her face and he's like hey quit fucking around and then david what i did not expect is he does start slicing into young sam's cheek yeah but then she responds with in russian go kiss a pig so i was right there with you with the my mommy's in the bathroom and you know i'm not allowed to talk to strangers like it does feel a little too juvenile but then to contrast it with oh hey not only do i know russian but go kiss a pig like that worked for me yeah it is a good little like uh you know setup and then uh uh-oh twist but David, then we hear a bunch of gunfire, and we assume that Scarlet has come back and just laid waste. And we, we know this, too, because the bad guy Russian like flips open the library book, which supposedly has the gun in it. But uh-oh, David, there's no gun in there. Where's the gun? It's gone missing. Bap, 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 bap. That's where it is. It is out of frame, and, and, and uh, it is in use. But David, when we first walk into the diner, there's a bunch of extras in the background. And then after Scarlet does her thing and kills everyone, no more extras. This diner. Do you get the impression that everyone in there are assassins or are they just like people, like civilians too? I get the feeling they're assassins or at least 98% of them because they all seem to follow and understand the rules of this diner, which is no weapons. So like you kind of have to have everybody on board. You can't just have an innocent bystander who doesn't know the rules of it just eating pancakes in there. Yeah, maybe the diner is located somewhere really out of the way to where it would not make sense for like an average person to go in there. Again, we're doing a lot of work for this movie, but that is okay. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know if the other people when the fighting started got the fuck out of there or if they were gunned down, but the diner is now empty. Scarlet, the mom, leaves and as Sam tries to run after her, she's stopped by a youngish looking Paul Giamatti and then we flash forward to the same diner Modern day, Sam is now waiting in the diner. Rose is there, not having aged today. More expected looking Paul Giamatti arrives. Yeah, so, you know, this is him 15 years later. Now we find out Sam works for the firm. So now she's recapping the job that she was just on, the one that starts the movie. And we find out that she was given bad intel. You know, she thought there was going to be like four or five guys, and then she had to take out a room full of dudes. So yeah, so she's pissed. You know, she's been given bad intel, but there's no time to grouse over that because she already has another job lined up. She's got to go uh, take care of some guy who stole some money from the firm. That's right, David. And that group of guys that she killed, apparently they're connected to a uh, powerful mob, the McAllister gang, I guess. But David, Paul Giamatti works for this organization of men who are quote unquote running things. And they are called the firm. And her new assignment go take out someone who stole from the firm. And they're like, wait, nobody steals from the firm. What the fuck is going on? This is very unusual. But David, this firm, this secret society, I'll admit I'm like, another secret society? Like, I don't know why. Like, what have I been? I don't think I've been watching anything recently to uh, warrant this uh, secret society fatigue. But it just it feels like it comes up a lot in movies. Oh, it absolutely does. It's starting to piss me off that I'm not an assassin in some sort of guild. I feel like one in every three people is an assassin out there in the world. 
David, true or false, you are actually a real-life secret society expert, correct? Or not an expert, but you, you're an enthusiast? It, it, it's my passion to learn more about secret societies, yeah. Okay, well, then tell you what, real quick, let's do a, uh, can I, do you mind if we do a little secret society quiz? I, please, I'd love to. All right, great. I'll give you the name of a secret society, and if you, let's see if you know what these societies do, okay? Okay, sure. Okay, the first one is the uh, clandestine group known as The Yard. Oh, Mac, start me off with an easy one. That's going to be the secret group of men that uh, that keep the metric system from taking over. That is correct, yes. They're very married to the imperial measurements, and they are pulling strings behind the scenes to, to keep that in place here in this country. Uh, David, are you familiar with the secret society known as The Class? The class is an interesting one. That's a secret group of teenagers that come up with positive slang. Yes, David, they're the ones who come up with the new phrases that I feel embarrassed using. The other day I said something was, that sure, that sure is busting it. And just, oh my goodness, the amount of shame I felt coming out of my over 40-year-old mouth. Oh my God, you had Riz all over your face. Okay, David, there's a curveball. I don't know if you know this one. The Batch. Of course I know the Batch, Mac. That's going to be the secret group that comes up with beauty items for straight dudes. Man, you really know your secret societies. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and yes, as we all know, uh, dumb straight guys, don't they, they resist any sort of beauty product. And so you can't just go to the store if you're a dude and buy a loofah. This group is like, okay, we'll, we'll sell men loofahs, but we'll call them uh, shower tools. Stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, here's a definite curveball. Let's see if you know this one. What about the secret group known as the Clot? Who doesn't know the clot, Mac? That's going to be the clandestine group that comes up with names for other groups. That is correct, yes. I don't know if you were going to know that one, but I mean, maybe it's a little too obvious. But yeah, they're they're a very humble group. Mac, that's why they gave themselves the worst name. They're not here to you know, hype themselves up. They're here for others. That's cool. But Mac, back to the plot. Let's meet crime boss Jim McAllister, played by the deep-voiced daddy from the Vivich, Ralph Innocent. We learn that McAllister's only son was gunned down by Sam on her last assignment. Whoops! Time for Sam to pick up some clean guns before her next assignment, so it's off to the library to seek help from some old friends. Librarian slash arms dealers Madeline, played by Carlo Gugino, Anna Mae, played by Angela Bassett, and Florence, played by Michelle Yeoh. Whoa, a real murderer's row of actors playing murderers. So let's start this chunk by meeting Jim McAllister. Man, that voice, as soon as you hear it, you know, oh, right, the guy from The Witch. Well, it was more like, oh, I know this guy, where from? And then it took me a minute. In casual conversation, David, do you refer to that movie as the the Robert Eggers film? Do you refer to it as the witch or the vivitch? It depends on the mood I'm in. And it depends on like the context I'm talking about. If I'm trying to have a serious conversation, I try real hard not to slip in the vivitch every now and then. Yeah, I call it the witch and get the fuck out of here with the vivitch. It's like when we somehow decided that the movie Seven had the letter seven in the middle of it besides V. When the fuck did that happen? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, of course. Seven. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say that. Just that's, leave me alone. It's called The Witch. This is how we're going to meet the villain of the movie. This is how we're going to meet Jim McAllister. He's walking through the crime scene, basically. He's walking through it the next day. He finds his son, who was a part of this thing, accidentally. Whoops, we find out. But as we're seeing this very tough, very stern, gruff villain mourning the death of his son, there's a moment where he notices his son's shoe is not on his body. He's like, where's the shoe? What shoe? The shoe that is not currently covering my son's left foot. The one that looks exactly like its twin, the right one. That fucking shoe. I don't know. We'll find it. And so he's got people scrambling around looking for the shoe among this cadre of dead bodies. And my first thought is, oh, are we going to have light moments in this movie? Like, what is this movie going to be? Yeah, I don't know. But he, the shoe gets recovered and the dad puts the shoe on the body and like ties it. 
like it's, it is a quick and effective way to show that he obviously cares about this kid. Because like an act of like tying your kid's shoes is something he must have done hundreds of times with his son uh, growing up. And so the fact that he wants to do it again, it's a it's an effective shorthand for that kind of relationship. Uh, but yeah, big Jim McAllister, he's talking to some character who I, I don't did not know we'd ever see again. But he says like, or you did you know my son was mixed up in this? Mixed up in what? The movie never tells us. Okay. But this uh, guy he's talking to is his nephew, his nephew Virgil, whose name I did not know until I read it in your notes, played by Adam Negatis. I'm with that, yeah. And later in this movie, he kind of exhibits kind of like a Gary Oldman energy. Specifically reminds me of a little bit of like Gary Oldman from The Professional, aka Leon or Leon. He doesn't quite hit that Gary Oldman levels of like, yeah, everyone or whatever. In my mind, I started calling him, instead of Gary Oldman, I started calling him Gary Young Douche, which you do not have to do, but that is how I <laughs> refer to him. If it helps the audience, picture Gary Oldman and the professional mixed with Gary Oldman and true romance. I think somewhere in the middle is going to be Gary Young Douche. Yeah, or Virgil, whatever you want to call him. But we see Sam on the way to her new assignment, and she's dressed like uh, this dark uh, Carmen San Diego, and I called him Carmine San Antonio. I was trying to come up with like, what would be a dark version of Carmen San Diego? But we see her in this outfit and she's got a giant bag. This is I Heart Kittens, I guess, which is just hilarious for some people. I don't know. And she shows up at this library, this very old, very fancy looking building. And at this library is Carlo Gugino. But did you, what did you think about this library? I thought we should be paying more in taxes if we can get libraries like this. Like, Open all hours. The selection is great. I, the set design on this movie, you know, all joking aside, the set design is great. The themed rooms in this library, are, there's no boring shots in this movie. This very easily could have just been a room with books. But you look at something like the Enchanted Forest that they have, which, is, you know, they decided to make it look like a forest. So they have an ocean room, which they decided to hang jellyfish from the ceiling. Like, they're they're doing stuff with their shots. I, I really appreciate the effort that this movie goes through. So when you say Enchanted Forest and then the never-ending ocean... Those are rooms in this library. She's like, those are the children's rooms at the library that has the, the kids' books. We've dressed them up thematically. This movie definitely uh, lays it on heavy with style. And as I, I did look at a couple of reviews afterwards, and that that's sort of like the little kind of easy knock in this movie is that it's very stylish with um, not as much uh, emphasis on the story. But I don't mind that, man. I'm down with style. I like this fucking synth music they're pumping in throughout. And the fact that everything is sort of like this neon-soaked kind of you know, overly fancy world. I mean, yeah, it's kind of hard to escape the fact that John Wick is also doing this, but this library is very cool. And like, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm happy to see Carla Gugino and everything. I, I don't know when that happened, when I went from like, oh, hey, Carla Gugino, to like, oh, hey, great, Carla Gugino. It may have happened, uh, I liked uh, all the stuff she does in the, those Mike Flanagan Netflix series or uh, occasionally like a couple movies that they did together. Did you ever see uh, the Karen Sisko series that she did? No, I did not. Yeah, it was great. I, that, I think that was probably the moment where I was like, okay, Carl Cugino. But Mac, you know, I, if it is a knock on this movie, then let it be a knock on this movie. But there are worse knocks to have. Like, I like a movie with personality. I like a movie that has something striking about it. Like, even looking at the costumes that they put the librarians in, everybody looks sharp. Like, Florence is in a nice vest. Anna Mae is in a nice vest. I'm starting to think, am I a vest guy now, Mac? You mean into vests? Or maybe you think you want to wear a vest? I think I might want to wear a vest. I think it slims me out. I'm susceptible, David. As you can see, I'm dressed like the warrior woman from the Road Warrior episode. I have big white shoulder pads and a headband on. So yeah, I'd, I'd say just if you feel it, go for it. Your cheekbones look amazing. Th thank you. I've, I definitely did that thing that Adele does. But yeah, so Sam goes to this library and Carla Gugino's like, you look familiar. 
did you possibly spend, I don't know, a lot of time here as a youth? And she's like, I don't know, maybe. And then they go in the background, and this is when the other characters come out. We get to see Michelle Yao and Angela Bassett looking great. At this moment, I was like, oh, this movie's like The Expendables, uh, but uh, with talented people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like, oh, shit, it's Dolph Lundgren. And uh, who's another expendable that I didn't give a shit about? Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer. No, I mean, one of the people who's like an action hero person that they're like regurgitating. Terry Crews. Well, I like Terry Crews. Maybe I'm just thinking of Dolph Lundgren. Maybe he's the only... <laughs> person or whatever but yeah i was like oh these are like the expendables but all of them i think have been nominated or should have won an oscar by now uh well i don't know if carla gugina is oscar nominated anyway but yeah and when we meet them david i did not notice on the first viewing the second one i was like oh this is one take they do a very long take where the three librarians meet sam and like wait we fucking know you you're scarlet's daughter you get the impression that Scarlett, her leaving Sam, like abandoning her, Sam 15 years ago, that she also cut ties with these librarians, that there's some hurt feelings there. And they're openly discussing whether or not to kill this person, <laughs> to kill Sam, or give her like a library card, like allow her to uh, check out weapons. But yeah, we get the sense that Sam has like held on to her murder weapons all these years. And this is her first time like having to go back to the library. I guess it was her best option for the short notice acquisition of clean weapons. I think it was supposed to feel like a last resort, but it kind of felt like a first resort. But it does, you know, it does serve a purpose. It does bring her back to the library. In fact, she's bringing back a lot of uh, the librarian's old weapons. She brings back, um, Carly Gugino had, had a tomahawk that she was quite fond of. And she was like, oh, I've been looking everywhere for this. Yeah, she calls it Tommy Tomahawk, which, I mean, we can do better than that, writers, can't we? <laughs> You're a librarian! Uh, yeah, and as they're unpacking the old weapons, they start to be like, oh, you held on to this. It looks like you're a bit of a sentimentalist. And then Sam's like, I'm not sentimental. Maybe the word you're looking for is I'm just professional. And it seems like she does definitely want to, in this moment, that Sam is like trying to like, no, I'm a, I'm an assassin. Take me seriously. I'm not like the little girl that you once knew. It, it kind of hints at this thing that kind of nags me about it. So in the flashback, that was Sam 15 years ago. She was living or at least spending a lot of time at this library uh, with her mom because they even mentioned anime. And not anime, the, uh, the Japanese animation, but uh, Anna Space May. After her mom leaves... I guess Sam just like, I guess I'll just be an assassin and I'll never go visit these librarians again. And Paul Giamatti will raise me. Is that your impression of what happened in the last 15 years that she was, just, I guess, just like Paul Giamatti didn't know what to do with her. So he trained her to be an assassin. That is. And if you're alluding to the fact that it doesn't add up, you're, you're absolutely right. Because it would make sense to me that she would have spent the past 15 years under the care of the librarians who would teach her how to be an assassin. I don't understand the disconnect between what Paul Giamatti does with the firm over here and what the librarians are doing over here and how come those two don't meet. Also, do you get any sort of like parental figure vibe between Paul Giamatti and Sam? Because I don't. I kind of do. And we'll get to that later. I think there's a moment where he showed, well, no, even that's kind of a fake out. Yeah, it feels more like an uncle, like a surrogate uncle vibe than like a surrogate parent vibe. It's interesting, and I don't think it slows the movie down. And and maybe this is, again, is like, I'm overthinking this Netflix action movie, which maybe I should not. But there's something about their relationship or her, how Sam got to be here and how she's feeling about the librarians. It doesn't completely, like, sync together, clink, clink, no gaps or no nothing. But anyway, she's she gave him the old weapons, so now she needs some new ones. She's trading in her old ones for new ones, and how is she going to get new ones? From the library. All of these shelves are full of books, and all of these books are full of weapons it makes me want to organize everything in fake books now. I, I just want my house to be bookshelves, and then you pull a, a you know a Stephen King book out of the shelf, and you open it up, and there's some candy, and you eat the candy. Yeah, except all these books are enormous. 
Carlo Gugino, definitely the sweetest of the librarian characters. Madeline adds an Agatha Christa novel to the pile of books, and it's, it looks like a normal book-sized book. And the other librarians look at her, and she's like, oh, what? No, this is legitimately, she need, might need something to read. But yeah, David, if you did that, you'd have these like giant tomes around your house. Is that okay? Do you have, do you have tome room in your home? Is your tome home? I'm super okay with that. I, I also don't have very big things. I just mentioned the candy as the first thing I owned. Yeah, you could definitely hollow out a Stephen King book. Those are those are pretty big. So with her new collection of library books, Sam is off to her next assignment to take care of an accountant, Samuel Anderson, who stole a fortune in bearer bonds from the firm. Sam finds the accountant, decides not to shoot him, then accidentally shoots him. We learn the accountant stole the money to use as a ransom payment because some unnamed lowlifes kidnapped the accountant's daughter for unknown reasons. Even though Sam's orders were to return the stolen money to the firm, she instead drops the badly wounded accountant off at a mob hospital before heading out to make the ransom exchange with the firm's recovered money. Yeah, so Sam shows up in this uh, hotel. And of course, it's very dark, David, and the hotel's got a neon sign. And she's dressed again like Wario Carmen San Diego. And she makes her way up to the accountant's room. So Sam walks in, she sees the accountant, and she goes, you know what, accountant? I'm not in the murdering mood today. Which is weird, because she just murdered a bunch of people. And then the accountant's phone rings. And she's like, don't fucking touch that phone. And he's like, I have to. And she's like, hey, I said don't, I have a gun. And he goes, I have to. And then there's a struggle and he gets shot. David, this dude is bad at explaining things. He did not even try to be like, oh, my daughter is kidnapped. He just instead was just like, I'll just say I have to, and then that'll be that'll be enough for this gun person. The drugs this guy is on, please give me some because there's no urgency to him. He's in the restroom when the phone rings. He comes out. And if it's me, I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Let me explain everything. My daughter's been kidnapped. You know, I'm trying to get as many words out as I can before that gun even gets pointed at me. So for him to just be like, I got to answer this phone. I got to answer this phone. Hey, I got to answer. It's like, wake the fuck up. Your daughter's been kidnapped. But then the phone rings. He goes to the phone. He's got to answer it. There's a struggle. There's a pause. I liked this because there's there's confusion. And generally with, with scenes like this in other movies, there's confusion as to, oh my God, who got shot? But with this movie, there's confusion as to, wait a second, was there a gunshot? Because the sound wasn't big. You know, there was like a, a bang where you absolutely knew there was some confusion there. And I was very okay with it. Yeah, it's a real subtle gunshot. And then the sound effect that follows it up is like kind of a squish. And I was like, wait, what did this bullet <laughs> squish this guy's guts around? It didn't sound like a bullet entered someone. It sounds like someone took a stick, jammed in someone's guts, and then uh, stirred it like a potion. <laughs> Not the right sound effect. But the accountant is hurt. Sam answers the phone, and some gruff voice guy's like, you got 60 minutes to bring the money to the bowling alley or your daughter dies. It's like, whoa, we're in it. And we see Sam look at the accountant and, you know, look at the the money, which is in kind of like this roller suitcase that looks like a panda bear. We cut to Sam, like, storming out of the room with the money, like, oh, well, fucking, that's his fucking problem. And then a second later, she's like, fuck, and then decides to go back and, like, drop off the money to save this, guy, this guy's daughter. In the moment in the room, I thought she had made that decision. So the fact that it took her an extra minute, I was like, oh, I, th- I was already there. But uh, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Yeah, no, I was very into it. You know, it was a nice twist to to get the rest of the movie going. So I was I was on board. And so she has a change of heart. She takes the accountant to the hospital. This hospital, Mac, this was maybe not something out of A Clockwork Orange, but almost to that same degree where A Clockwork Orange was a very stylized movie too. And this is this movie goes for the best shot available. I think Navapupashado and his team, they saw a room like this. And then they worked from there. They were like, oh, let's turn this into the hospital. They didn't go to a hospital and say, let's make this look wacky. 
I think they saw wacky stuff and made it work for them. And you'll see that throughout the movie. I loved it. I, I thought their choices were so cool. Yes, the world of this movie that Gunpowder Milkshake takes place in. First of all, they don't tell you what city it's in. I found it was filmed in Berlin. Everything's in English for the most part. The only hint that it's not in the United States is later we see some car combat. The license plate tags are definitely not U.S. license plates, but it doesn't matter. But this world, David, is very sparsely populated. Like, we do not see a lot of people in there. You know, like, wherever we go, it just tends to be, you know, whoever has a speaking role. There's no extras in the background or anything like that. What did you think of this very sparsely populated world of GPM Shake, David? Because it it felt, it, it did make the movie feel to me separate from reality. It reminded me a lot of The Driver, where... You know, the driver primarily takes place at night and those streets are sparse too. And it almost had this feeling of the nighttime is no place for normal people. The nighttime is only a place where criminals live. So that's kind of what this movie felt like. You know, it once it gets dark, you better go home because that's when the bad guys come out. Yeah, the movie did seem to take place in like the dead of night averse. Almost as if like, <laughs> okay, between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m., for some people, that's an hour. For some people, that lasts longer. And this is when all this stuff happens. Like, it just... But even the driver, David, there's, like, def, the, that city that takes place, and there's, like, people in the background doing things. There's nothing like that in this movie. And part of me is like, oh, I wonder if this was a financial decision. But whether it is or whether it isn't, this movie seems to be, like, leaning into it and really kind of going for it with this kind of, like, nighttime, lonely world feel. And I, I'm into it. I like it so far. You know it's a wacky world because... Sam and the accountant get to the hospital and there's a there's a nurse waiting at the reception area. She sees Sam walking in and she immediately says, guns go in the cookie jar. And we we see there's like a tooth-shaped cookie jar on top of the desk. So you pull off the top of it, you throw your guns in there. And that's all very nice. That's all very fine and good. But man, Mac, this world of ruthless assassins is very rule-abiding. Like if if they walk into a place of business and that place of business says, hey, we don't have open carry here. They listen. They put their guns away. Like, this this is not adding up to me. But that's how it is. You know, you got to abide by these rules. You'll no longer get access to this, I'm assuming, open at all hours, like, you know, secret mob hospital. But David, the secret mob hospital does not have, like, secret mob hospital guards outside of it. There's the receptionist slash nurse. And then later on, we see uh, the doctor, played by uh, Michael Smiley, who I've, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Most notably, I think he was in the kill list. But yeah, when Sam first shows up, the nurse is like distracted and Karen Gillan, I don't know if she like presses the like ding, like desk clerk bell or whatever, but she kind of makes a motion with her gun, like sort of like a very grand kind of like, look what's fucking behind me. It's a guy who shot. Do something with it. But that's the thing, David. It's a mob hospital. You're bringing someone in. If you're bringing someone here, we know they're hurt, right? It's not like, a, oh my God, a, a, a gunshot wound. It's like, yeah, everyone here has got a fucking gunshot wound, except no one else is there. And so there's absolutely no rush to deal with these people that are shot. And when, when we do meet the doctor, they're like, oh, what's going on here? Are you again? How's it going? Like absolutely no hurry to deal with this person who was most definitely bleeding out. There was something funny about it that wore on me very quickly because, yeah, he walks in taking his sweet time. You know, he ends up taking a hit of laughing gas, you know, kind of to take the edge off. And it's a it's a real quick tonal shift, you know. You know, like we talked about with uh, McAllister and his son Shoe, it kind of just comes out of nowhere, and it had me thinking, Mac. And I want to ask you because you know I was wondering what this movie wants to be. 
And I was wondering if you had to pitch Gunpowder Milkshake and you had to say it's a cross between blank movie and blank movie, do you have two movies in mind to compare it to? Well, David, obviously I'd start with it's a cross between John Wick and, but the fact that it has this like heightened reality, it's like hyper reality, it, it almost feels staged. To me, it, it seems like it's a cross between John Wick and I'd almost say dark, the first half of Dark City. Oh, okay. I mean, just because it, like before you get revealed that they're in a Matrix, you know, because it almost feels like they're in the fucking Matrix or something like that. It just, it's like a stage play almost. That's interesting. I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked those because I was wrestling with two. Here are the two tastes that I had in my head. So leading up to this point, I'm settling into the idea that this movie is a lot like Drive. You know, it's very cool. It's got a mood to it. Even just the idea of this cool, calm character having to suddenly care for other people, you know, it, it runs alongside what, what Drive was about. But then this moment with Dr. Rookie, and it suddenly becomes very wacky. So I'm comparing, on the one hand, I've got Drive, and on the other hand, I've got like a movie like Crank, or more specifically, like Crank High Voltage. So if you look at those two movies and try to put them together, it shouldn't work. So I'm almost impressed at how this movie is working so far. Yeah, the movie definitely has like a dreamlike quality to it. There's a shot in Kill Bill, which really confused me at first, Kill Bill Part 1. Uh, just because I was not expecting it, but it's when the bride is flying out to Japan to fight against Oren Ishii and the Crazy 88s. And you see that while she is in the airplane, they she's allowed to store her sword, her katana blade, like right next to her. But that kind of like heightened reality where it's like, oh, are you an assassin? Yes, very good. Like it, it, it felt like that to me. So yes, it's kind of like a, a dreamier, more stylized John Wick. Maybe. I'm fine with that. That makes sense to me. But Sam's going to, you know, while she's getting the accountant patched up, she's going to reach out to Nathan and she's going to tell him, hey, uh, it got complicated. This accountant has actually stole this money for good reasons, as though that's going to buy her some time or some goodwill. But Nathan's just like, bring the money back. I, I couldn't care less. Like, you got to get back here. But she's she's making other decisions. She's going to try to help this accountant. Yeah. And so she's got to now make this drop off. And so she, where is she going? Uh, she's got to take this money to the local bowling alley. Uh, where some masked kidnappers give her further instructions, including a different meeting place. Piece of cake, right? Wrong. Because then here come three of the firm's goons who were instructed by Nathan to get the money back from Sam, but to not kill Sam. Well, goons, that's your fucking problem, because Sam goes equalizer on their asses in an action set piece we'll call The Boneheads Learn a Bloody Lesson. Yeah. So at this point in the movie, she goes to the bowling alley, which again neon sign that indicates this place is called the gutter ball and now we've completely stopped with other actors there's no one in this fucking bowling alley there's no bowling alley attendant okay we don't see her break into the bowling alley it just doesn't matter she's in just this lonely city nighttime world and that's where we are these thugs show up and they're different sizes it's kind of like mama bear papa bear baby bear uh but when they show up she calls them the she's like oh a bonehead or more boneheads because that's why these thugs i don't know if they're given names in the credits, but she only refers to them as boneheads. So that's what I will call them as well, the boneheads. Before the boneheads enter, she shows up in the bowling alley and the phone rings and the bad guys are not there. They're watching her like, who the fuck are you? You know, where's the other guy? And she's like, let's just make the exchange. And we get a glimpse of the kidnappers, David. And it's uh, a little surprising. Mac, this glimpse scared the crap out of me because you see the four kidnappers, you see the four culprits behind this, you know, behind these Venetian blinds in the bowling alley office. And you only get a, a, a quick look at the head guy's face and his head. And it's like, golly, who's this ghoul? 
in this office, this terrible human being, but they're wearing masks. They're all wearing uh, Halloween fright masks. Each one is a different universal monster. I felt really stupid, but also uh, uh, very, very comfortable afterwards. Yeah, they're wearing these very realistic, like latex looking masks. And it, <laughs> I also was like, oh, these people just look really old, like ravaged by time. It's like, no, Mac, that man's literally a mummy. Uh, so yeah, I'm right there with you. And like, you need to change clothes, I guess, because in case her clothes are wearing a wire, Sam picks up some of the clothes that they wanted her to wear. And she like, looks in like a, the camera where she assumes they're watching her. And she picks up the clothes, looks at the camera and is like, uh, gives kind of a look like, uh, are you kidding me? You expect, you seriously expect me to wear this? But what she was having Mac is in this glass case. She, she sees this, uh, bowling trophy jacket. It's got a, a picture of a tiger on the back of it. Mac, I really wanted big things out of this tiger jacket. I love it. Yeah, it's another, like the movie Drive, it's another satin style jacket. And it was very cool. And it has a picture of like a logo with a tiger on it. A tiger somehow involved in bowling in some way. And I was like, ooh, I like that little tiger logo. That's really cute. And I looked it up. Yes, you can buy a replica of this jacket. It is expensive. But no, David, you cannot buy just a hat with this logo on there. I don't know if it's the fault of the movie for not being successful enough or for the uh, ripoff industry that exists on sites like Redbubble or Etsy. <laughs> These people are just like, copyright, what's that? Which I've had, I've had work that I've worked on stolen and like reused without permission on the site, which is it's pretty shocking. But at this moment, you, you guys are doing your job because I, I wanted to buy a bootleg uh, gutter balls tiger hat. But instead, uh, we're going to meet the boneheads. You know, uh, Sam has... She's been given instructions to go to the mall. She's got 10 minutes, but she gets interrupted by the boneheads. And the lead up to what eventually ends up being the fight between the three of them and, and Sam, it's very fun and it's very cool. But Karen Gillan, throughout this movie, is a little too much of the stone-faced assassin to the point where maybe unfairly I'm wondering, is Karen Gillan going to be Nebula forever? Like, is she locked into this performance style where she has to play it a little emotionless every time. I I, I hope not. Because Guardians uh, of the Galaxy 3 just came out, I was watching a clip of Karen Gillan talking about how when she was building the character Nebula, James Gunn, the director, writer-director, gave her a note. He's like, yeah, that was great. Try it again, but try it like Marilyn Monroe meets Clint Eastwood. She did it, and she was like, oh my God, that's the entire character of Nebula. So because I had that like very clear in my mind, you know, just like, oh, it's the boneheads. But there was no sort of like sultriness to it like there is with Nebula, which it's funny because in those Guardians movies, I never even got that Marilyn Monroe aspect to it with Nebula. But then as soon as it pointed out, it's like, yeah, she is kind of breathy in that thing. But there's no there's no breathiness in this, so it, it felt different. But you're right, it's kind of like a removed stance for her character. I feel like that's kind of a typical action hero thing where she's playing a little too cool for school. You know, when bad guys show up, you want to just give them a little one-liner here. And so that that kind of felt in line. But yeah, it's not necessarily the most interesting thing, but I liked it. Yeah, don't misunderstand me. It absolutely works for this movie, and I'm, I'm very happy. I don't want this to come across like I think she should smile more. I'm just, you know, I, I'd oh. like to see her in more diverse roles <laughs> moving forward. I, I wasn't getting that. I, I thought you were like, yeah, no, we've seen this too cool for school character from her before. Is that all we're going to get? And the answer is, yeah, it's all you're going to get. You're going to like it. That's our first fight here. The Boneheads were instructed, yeah, to not kill Sam, just like teach her a lesson. No one's murdering anybody in this. We are in a bowling alley. So how'd you feel about this? I liked it overall. I want to state that first because it, the fight is fun. Let me say that. The fight is absolutely a lot of fun. It's just not particularly good, if I could say that. Like there's a gracefulness to it. There's a gracefulness to this fight. 
but it feels like it's at the expense of authenticity. That's not a fault of the movie. I think it's, it, you know, it's a virtue of the movie. I, the movie knows exactly what it's going for, but it it struck me upon first viewing. I think I know what you're saying there, David, because it, this fight is three on one. Later on, when she kind of creates a little bit more space with the boneheads, she's able to take them on more individually, and then the fight kind of relaxes a little bit. But at first, you know, when you're fighting three different people at once, there's a certain amount of like choreography, a, a, kind of like a dance element to it, right? Where you like block a kick from this person, you punch person number two, and then you dodge out of the way of person number three, and they punch person number one. There has to be like a little bit of like a balletic kind of gracefulness to it. And in this one, it feels like a little too choreographed. Like it felt more like an okay go video where she's like, I stand here and then I stand there. Like she, you know, held up the bowling ball to block this. And the mo- the moments from like impact to impact, they did not feel very smooth at first. It just felt like, oh, these are actors who have memorized what spots they have to be in and what they have to be doing. It did not feel like a fight at first. It just, it felt like I was watching choreography. But as the fight goes on, I started to get more into it. Also, Dave, there's some some cool fight music and it even has some lyrics. Interesting move by the music to, to talk about how we are fighting, I guess. Yeah. But because the boneheads are not supposed to kill her, they don't all just have guns. They have like different weapons. Like one guy has got like a cattle prod, right? Another guy, the main one, the big bonehead's got a baseball bat. And as this fight starts to pick up the rhythm, I start to get more into it. And David, there's a move here where the big bonehead, Papa Bonehead, he's got his bat and Sam kicks the bat. And they, because she kicks the bat, the bat then hits the dude in the face. So kicking the, the dude's bat into his own face, I love that. That was my first mark out moment, David, because I was like, oh, hell yeah. Very cool. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. As this fight progresses, it transitions from the gracefulness of the beginning of it to, okay, we're actually going to fight. We're actually going to stick somebody in the nuts with a cattle prod. We're actually going to fight somebody with a bowling ball since we're in the bowling alley. And I'll tell you what, I didn't mark out during the sequence, but I did have a few JFC moments with the bowling ball usage where... She she cracks the big guy. He's being named Yankee in this movie. I can't remember his actual human name. Ivan K. He's going to get cracked in the knee with a bowling ball. I could feel that one. And she's going to throw a spare at some other guy's head. That's going to be really fun. Even hitting a bowling ball with a baseball bat. That If you've ever like not gripped a baseball bat and hit a ball, that's its own kind of pain. So I can imagine that's not even fun either. Yeah, David, you mentioned the equalizer. And yeah, in those movies, you know, Denzel Washington, his character like looks around a room and he's like, what am I going to use to beat these dudes up? Because he doesn't carry a weapon. I did not realize that was going to be such a big theme of this movie. But yeah, she's like using everything. Like at some moment, someone's like going to swing a weapon down on her and she has that roll bag suitcase, right? And she pulls out the handle of the suitcase to block the attack. And then she shoves the handle of the suitcase down and like breaks a guy's finger who was like trapped underneath it. And so, yeah, she pulls out this bowling ball. And David, look, I've established on this podcast before. If you set a fight at a specific environment, I want to see that environment come into play. So, yeah, when she picks up a bowling ball, it's like, well, you, you got to pick up a bowling ball. And yeah, I was right there with you. When she crunched that guy's knee, the sound effects were like crunch. Like that Foley artist was really cracking that celery that day <laughs> because I also said, Jesus fucking Christ. So it ends with a bowling ball to the head, right? She like sized it up and she bowls this pulls the ball at him. And because they do it in slow motion, like there's something about a slow-mo hit. So David, let's say you burned your hand, right? Like you reached out and you touched something that was very hot. You might jerk your hand away very fast because it's very sharp pain. You might be like, oh, but let's say you did something like uh, you 
you hit your hand with a hammer or you drop something heavy on your foot, you might in that moment, instead of being like, oh, yeah, yeah, you might be like, gee, fuck. Like you really like feel that pain. So when the slow motion bowling ball hit that guy's head and he just kind of like slowly reacted backward, and maybe it was because of the slow-mo, but I was on board for it. I liked that as well. It did make it seem like it really hurt. But David, she was talking to the uh, kidnappers who were watching her on camera, and these kidnappers were watching her this whole time. They never cut away to them being like, well, who the fuck are these guys? What the fuck is going on? I think they cut away to them at the very end, right? I think so, but I wanted to spend more time in that moment because what on earth are these kidnappers thinking? They just thought, hey man, we just wanted some ransom money from some pencil-pushing accountant. And now we've got this badass just laying waste to people who aren't even ours. These aren't our guys. These are just some other guys. I know. It almost seems like kind of obvious that you would cut to back inside the control room where our universal monster kidnappers are and have one of them be like, wait, who the fuck? Some more guys are showing up. Is it just that this director just hates kind of expositional dialogue of any kind? I don't know. Seems weird. Seems like a weird choice. I was right there with you. But these boneheads are beat up. And now Sam arrives at an abandoned video store inside an abandoned mall. That's where she was told to make the trade. And the trade is giving the money to the kidnappers in exchange for the accountant's daughter, Emily, played by Chloe Coleman. But Sam makes the exchange. And then, you know, before she can even try to recover the money, the mission blows up in her face. So, Mac, it's going to be some more city at night. The lonely city, this abandoned mall. I love abandoned malls. I miss abandoned malls. Mac, I, can I get a quick abandoned mall update? How are my Austin malls doing? My Lake Lines, my Barton Creeks, how are they? Barton Creek is pretty busy. I've, I've been there a couple times. Hmm. Uh, I never make it up to Lake Line in very south. For some reason, Lake Line, whenever I go there, I'm always like, wow. It still has a little bit of that wow mallness to it. But yeah, David, as you know, I think you were here for the destruction of, not the destruction, I don't know what you call it, the transformation of two major malls. There's North Cross. North Cross was already sad when I moved to Austin. There's Highland Mall, which I remember started to get sad. And then as we know now, it's now like a parking garage, a community college, and then a probably a corporate headquarters for rack space or something like that. Before malls become empty husks, there's a period where you look around at the stores and you're like, wait, what the fuck is this? Which honestly, that's kind of how I feel about Facebook now. Facebook feels like a dying mall where you're like, oh, does, does Highland Mall have a gap? It's like, yeah, let's go to the gap. And you go, wait, this isn't a gap. It's an everything's purple store. <laughs> Hold on. That's not. Oh, no, guys, this mall is sick. But back to this movie, Max. So uh, so Sam makes it to the abandoned mall. She makes it to Video Beast, which is a video store with everything 99% off. I, I like that joke. The kidnappers have some questions for Sam. The, the first question is, are you a cop? And her response is, could a cop do what I just did? Mac, I love this movie. That was such a great response. Yeah, and also a dumb question from these guys. But the trade goes off as planned. You know, Sam's plan now is she's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the girl back, and then I'm going to get the money back because I'm a fucking A-lister assassin, and these guys are chumps. Uh, these guys are chumps, David. They're the world's biggest chumps because as soon as the bad guys get into a car, wherever the kidnapper is in the Frankenstein mask, it's like, oh, give me the money. Like, he's decided to pull off this double cross instantly while in the backseat of a car that he has no control over. And of course the car, things go like, you know, tits up so quick. Yeah, he has no high ground. He has no leverage. There's no strategy here. <laughs> He's riding third in this car and decides to pull this power move. It does not go very well. Frankenstein shoots the driver. The car goes careening off. The driver crawls out of the car with the money pulls a grenade, blows himself up. In any other movie, in any other situation, I'm marking out at this, but it was so 
unexpected. It was almost too random that I couldn't quite mark out at it. Yeah, it was such a weird decision by Frankenstein to pull this double cross like this quickly. And again, the fact that everything went tits up so fast, it went dicks out so fast, it went balls to the side so fast, <laughs> it went ass open, you know, so fast, David. But no, I was right there with you. I did not know what the fuck is going on. But yeah, so Frankenstein, he th- he throws the grenade, I think as he's getting shot by Dracula and uh, the guy in the Dracula mask. And so the grenade goes like two feet. But David, here's the problem. The Frankenstein guy, he's holding the suitcase with the bearer bonds in it. And so the suitcase blows up, blowing up all the bearer bonds. Real quick, David, some of our listeners might be like, you're saying Frankenstein. Don't you mean Frankenstein's monster? David, as you know, uh, I'm real close friends with Dr. Frankenstein. And he said it was was cool if we called Frankenstein's monster Frankenstein, because turns out that's what he named him. Dr. Frankenstein named the, the monster Frankenstein as well. So there we go. We're all right. And so Sam walks over to this clusterfuck of a scene where, as we know, David, everything's gone ears off. And uh, she sees that the guy with the Dracula mask on is still alive. So she picks up a stick and she stabs the Dracula guy right in the chest with a, like with like an improvised stake. And blood goes everywhere. The sound effect really sells it. I was like, whoa, cool. And then I was like, wait, hold on a second. He's not an actual Dracula. <laughs> like, he's just wearing a mask. <laughs> you gave him a terribly painful and difficult death. David, it's getting a piece of wood through a sternum. Like a not really sharp piece of wood through a sternum. That's not easy. That makes me want to throw up thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like there's a lot of parts of this movie that they reverse engineered. Where they knew when they sat down to write the script, whatever happens in this movie... I want a scene with this. And this is this feels like one of those scenes. And again, why did the Universal Monster Kidnappers kidnap the daughter? Why did they target the accountant specifically? We don't know, and we never will. But now it is time to go back to the hospital. That's right. We're going to see how the accountant is healing. But uh-oh, the accountant is dead. The mob doctor makes a deal with the injured bowling alley boneheads. The doctor will temporarily paralyze Sam's arms with a local anesthetic. Okay. That's right. And the boneheads can then kill Sam. Even with spaghetti arms, the boneheads learn that Sam's a badass for a second time in an action set piece we'll call Weird War Wacky Arms. After killing the boneheads, Sam informs Nathan that the stolen money was destroyed. And Nathan informs Sam that was a real bad move. So the boneheads get beaten up, right? We saw that scene in the bowling alley. And where do they go? They go to the same mob hospital. And as we see them, they've gotten into the supply of the nitrous laughing gas. And so they're, even though they're beaten to shit, they're having a grand old time. And the doctor walks in, Dr. Ricky. He goes, uh, hey, why do you guys look like you're from The Walking Dead? David, well, I did not like this weird reference to The Walking Dead. Where did this come from? Me neither, especially in a movie that has no connection to the outside world. This movie could really just live under the dome for all we know. So for them to have a Walking Dead reference, it just I have to wonder if the writers are happy with that. It it, it, it adds an expiration date to a movie that went without one for the entire run. Yeah, this movie, you know, again, it's kind of like unlocated in space and, and sort of in time. You know, we're in this kind of like weird separate from reality world. And so making a pop culture reference like that, it really stuck out like a sore thumb. And I, I did not like it. I, I think I visibly scowled at it like, mm. but I'll tell you what I do like this laughing gas acting. So the boneheads, you know, they're taking pulls off of it. I'll mention him again. Yankee played by Ivan K. He's going to have some really great laughing gas acting. In fact, if we could just play a clip right here. Before Doc. <laughs> you got us good, Doc. I don't think I'll ever walk again. <laughs> well, it must be an epidemic. 
the joy of delivering the line, you know, he, he'll never walk again, but he he's playing it so well. I, I'm I'm really into this, into these moments. And it's interesting too, because we've already seen these boneheads. They've already done their like, you know, hey, we're tough and you're coming with us. And now the fact that they're like all goofed up, it's a different element to it as well. They're not, it's, it's unexpected because we're, you know, we're supposed to view these like, you know, tough bad guy goons as just kind of scowling. So the fact they're cracking up this whole time, it, it's, I didn't hate it. I liked it. But they arrive at the hospital to check on the dad. And and Sam obviously has not told the little girl that the reason why her dad is in the hospital is because uh, Sam shot him. She's keeping that information close to the vest. I do not blame her. But as they arrive at the hospital to check on her dad, uh, what do they find? They, they walk in and they see the candy striper, or I guess the fashion nurse, and she's covered in blood. But the door is open to the, the accountant's room, and he's got a sheet over him. The sheet is comically covered in blood. And the candy stripe was just like, sure, kid, walk on in. Come say goodbye to your dad. It was odd, but I did enjoy it. Well, yeah, we get a shot of the fact that, like, oh, no, the little girl saw inside the room and she saw the nurse covered in blood. Oh, no, the dad is dead and the, the, the little girl knows about it. Cut to the little girl inside the room. Yeah, just like staring at the dead body. I was watching this movie with my feral wife and I was like, why, why show the girl the body? And my feral wife suggested that it, it was so the girl would not think that he ran away. Like it was for closure. Because a little bit earlier in the movie, the little girl says like, it's like, you know, it's okay that my dad's not here to make the ransom exchange. He never comes when he says he will. Meaning that like she's used to the dad not showing up. And I guess it's Sam because her mom just like disappeared and doesn't know what where her mom is. She's like, no, this dad is dead. Let the little girl soak in that feeling for a while. Which, okay, if that's the choice, that choice is still fucked up. It does, I mean, it makes sense, but it also doesn't make any sense. Why show this girl the fucking body? You're right. It's fucked up, but there's a fucked up poignancy to it. I'm, I'm willing to meet the movie halfway because I think Sam in that moment wants to at least give Emily the closure that she that Sam never had. Sam's relationship with Scarlett was, my mom is always late. She's never on time. She's never where she says she, she's going to be. And Sam sees that in Emily. So let me at least show... Emily, that your dad was doing everything he could to save you. You know, he did all this for you. So I, I think there's something there. But at the same time, yeah, you just showed this girl her dead dad. So in the Dr. Ricky, the mob doctor, he's talking to the boneheads. He's like, what happened to you guys? Who did this to you? And the boneheads are like, a girl. <laughs> and they laugh. He's like, so a girl fucked you up. I have a dead account in the other room and a girl fucked him up too. The doctor uh, figures out that these boneheads are trying to kill Sam and he's like, all right, I will help you kill Sam. And he comes up with this plan. I'll give her an injection and it'll paralyze her arm. She won't be able to use her arms. And then in 60 seconds, she'll be a sitting duck. What did you take that to mean? I took that to mean her arms will slowly lose feeling or, you know, she'll, she'll slowly lose the ability to control her arms. And in 60 seconds, she won't be able to use her arms at all. What was your read on this one? I thought that he would give her the injection. The first thing he would do would paralyze her arms. And then in 60 seconds, she would not be able to move at all. And then later when he does it, she uses the loose of her arms very fast. Because he doesn't. She's like, fuck you. And then she like picks up a gun and all of a sudden she drops the gun. She can't use her arms. And the doctor runs away and he's like, 60 seconds. He's like screaming it to the boneheads. Because the arm paralysis happened so fast... It just feels weird for him to be like, I'm going to paralyze her arms. And then 60 seconds, it will have been 60 seconds to when her arms were paralyzed. Like, just like it happened. <laughs> you need to wait 60 fucking seconds. She already was a sitting duck. I don't know. It was confusing to me. Her arms go limp 
within five seconds. So, hey, just stick a scalpel in her throat. Like, you know, you really don't need to call the boneheads on this one. Yeah, he 100% could have killed her. That's absolutely true. Instead, he gives her time to, like, prepare by uh, Sam asks young Emily to, like, duct tape some weapons to her hands and, like, duct tape some metal instrument trays to, like, a chair, basically creating kind of like a bulletproof chair for her to, like, roll herself around in because she can still use her legs. But this is where Sam is going to enlist Emily's help. She's like, I need you to be brave. I need you to be a big girl and help me do these things. And so one of those things, like you said, she's going to tape a gun to her right hand and she's going to tape a a scalpel into her left hand. Look, Emily's doing great in this movie. She, you know, she's, she's holding her own, but in moments like this, she kind of comes off as what used to be Webby, but she's coming off like a bit of a yo-hey. She's coming off like a bit of excess baggage in this movie because there's, you know, just decisions like when she's taping the the scalpel into Sam's hand, she doesn't grip Sam's hand around it. She just kind of tapes the knife onto on top of her fist, almost like an action figure. There's no thought going into it. And it, it shouldn't have driven me nuts, but it kind of drove me nuts. Yeah, I also felt like Sam should have been like talking to her more like, you know, oh, I, know I want the knife facing the other way. Get it good and tight, like giving a little bit more instructions. And maybe they didn't cut it out or something. I don't know. But yeah, it felt... A little oddly convenient that it all worked out. The boneheads are like, well, we're coming to kill you. And Sam's like, wait, it's the boneheads again? Oh, I thought it was going to be someone dangerous. This will be easy or whatever. Anyway, she rolls herself out into the uh, the hallway where the boneheads are waiting. The The big bonehead, Yankee, he's in a wheelchair. Another guy's on some crutches. Another guy's like limping, you know, because she just beat the shit out of him. And here we go. We have a very weird action set piece here where Sam cannot use her arms except you know, by just swinging them around like a uh, inflatable uh, wavy wacky arm tube guy. This is amazing. I love this. There, there's a lot of slapstick. There's a lot of physical comedy, I guess, for lack of a better term. The arms are swinging wildly. She's trying to get a lot of momentum in her arms swinging. The The movie's making good use of the Bonehead's handicaps. You know, one is using arm braces. You know, uh, Yankee is in a wheelchair. This is way better than the bowling alley sequence. Not to compare one to the other, but... If you saw the bowling alley sequence and you were underwhelmed, don't worry. There are much better action sequences coming in this movie. So the, f- the first fight was Sam one on three versus these three boneheads. And the second fight, David, it's Sam one on three versus the boneheads. I mean, that seems like an obvious misstep, right? Like, well, we just fucking saw this fight. But it does not feel like that at all because of the weird parameters of this fight, right? Sam cannot use her arms except just like the gravity of them, like the fact that she can swing her arm fast enough to where it'll compress the trigger on the gun she can't use her arms but the boneheads are hurt like they like you just said they're dealing with their injuries this like funky setup it keeps it very fresh and ends up being like a very fun fight and at one point i think she grabs a scalpel and she stabs it into the neck or the collarbone area of big bonehead yankee and he lets out this like scream and like i don't know you know who won the screamies that year but if he wasn't nominated, it was obscene because the scream he gives out, like, ah, I really did feel like, let's, why am I doing a impression of it? Here's the scream. Let's listen to it. What's a scream? That, that felt like he really got fucking stabbed. Uh, that was another markout moment for me. I loved it. You were listening to a grown man turn into a child. It's, it's exceptional work. I had a markout moment too in this chunk. We've killed the first bonehead whose name I 
can't recall. We've killed the second bonehead, whose name I can't recall. And so it's just going to be Sam and Yankee. Yankee is in a wheelchair, trying his best. He just got stabbed in the neck. He just got his ear bitten. Because there's a funny sequence where he can't move very much, but he can bite Sam's arm. But she can't feel her arm, so she doesn't react at all. It's really fun. It ends up to where Yankee falls out of his wheelchair. He can't move. And he's he's underneath the cookie jar that's being used to hold the guns. So Sam hops on the countertop, starts edging the, the cookie jar a little bit closer to, to the edge of the countertop. And so finally she pushes it off. The cookie jar lands on Yankee's head, crushes his head. This is going to be my first markout moment. I, the anticipation of it, knowing it was going to happen and still watching it pay off. I was super into this. If you see a piece of like storage, it's shaped like a giant tooth. I wouldn't automatically assume it was very heavy. But when she was pushing it, I think there was a little like granite being pushed kind of sound effect. And she's like, oh, I guess that tooth is heavy. Uh, it's going to land on this dude's head. I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, it smashed it like a melon. So that, <laughs> I was into it. And then when the bones had uh, their phone rings, and instead of the boneheads picking up because they're dead, they can't talk on the phone. As we all know from that famous Mickey Splane uh, novel, uh, Dead Men Don't Answer Smartphones. Uh, Sam picked up the phone and it's Nathan. He's like, tell me you killed her. And she's like, no, Nathan, it's me. Your surrogate daughter slash niece. I'm alive. And he's like, oh, well, there's people going to come kill you now. Sorry, I can't protect you anymore. But after she gets off the phone, she gets a text message from Nathan saying like, I can't protect you anymore. Maybe that's where he says it. But I have a package for you. And he sends her an address, which is kind of interesting. Because I got the feeling in that moment that it was like legitimately like reaching out to her. It's like, oh, he does care about her a little bit. He doesn't care about her that much because he, right before this second fight, he told the boneheads like, yeah, go ahead and kill her. You now have my permission to murder Sam. But then meanwhile, Sam and Emily, uh, they have to get to the safe house, but they have a little trouble getting out of the hospital parking garage. It's a car combat action set piece we'll call Take Your Daughter to Demolition Derby Day. Sam and Emily eventually make it to the safe house where they find Sam's mama, Scarlet, alive and well after all these years. Yeah, I guess Sam thinks that Nathan does care about her because... It does, like, why wouldn't it be a trap? And it's weird because you're right. It is a trap because he tells Jim McAllister where it is, but it's also not a trap because you get the feeling that, like, Nathan is like, look, if anyone can protect you and get you through this, it's your mom. You don't know where she lives, but I do. I mean, maybe it's just the fact that Nathan is just trying to play it both ways. Like, he's trying to be loyal to the firm and, like, do the right thing. Because at this point, like, his bosses have shown up and they're, like, all sitting around in his little uh, office suite staring at him. No, no dialogue. Getting the idea that this transgression is very serious. The fact that Sam killed Big Jim McAllister's son. But I guess, you know, while he's trying to stay loyal to the firm, he's also trying to protect his, I don't know, again, I say niece, but, you know, whatever his relationship is with Sam. Someone he, he does give a little bit of a shit about. I guess, but he's still calling Jim McAllister. Which, by the way, when we see Jim McAllister, he's still at the warehouse where his son was killed. Like, they're just now gathering the bodies. It's been almost all day. So that, that was a little weird. I think time moves differently in this weird nighttime lonely world. That makes sense. But, you know, Sam and Emily, they got to get out of there. They got to go to the safe house. They're headed down the elevator to the parking garage. And there's the doctor. There's Dr. Ricky in the elevator. And there's a cool moment. Sam still doesn't have the use of her arms. But she sure does want to shoot this doctor. So she's like propping the gun up on her leg and sliding the gun down to, to aim at the doctor's head. But then Emily catches this and she's like, no, please don't. You know, she doesn't say it, but she doesn't want Sam to kill this doctor. And that's all fine and good for the movie. But as a viewer of this movie, I sure did want that doctor to get a really glorious murder. Yeah, here's a here's a quick punch up that I'll do. 
So Emily says, like, no, don't kill the doctor. And Sam in the movie says, just remember, doctor, your life was spared because of an eight-year-old girl. And then I wanted them to leave the elevator. And then I want Sam to go, oh, hold on, I forgot something really quick. And then go back and off screen, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like you see her covered in blood. And like, she's like, no, sorry, you're eight years old. You, you'll understand when you're older. I had to kill that fucker. They get to the parking garage and Sam's like, all right, I'm going to drop you off at your mom's house. And the little girl's like, no, my mother left a long time ago. And Sam's like, do you have anyone? The little girl's like, no. But here's the thing. Her dad was always leaving. So someone must have had eyes on this kid. Is this a plot hole? Or are we just assuming like uh, she was raised by a, a, a TV? Like, hey, I'll just, uh, you, you look on your tablet for a while and uh, or, or play on your Switch and I'll just, I'll be back tomorrow. Mac, it's it's the latter because this movie is doing something throughout that we haven't mentioned. It seems that a lot of Emily's education and a lot of her knowledge comes from television because at one point Sam gets shot and Emily notices the gunshot wound. She's like, you better go to the doctor or else that'll get infected and you have to take your arm off. And Sam's like, what are they teaching you in school? And Emily's like, well, I learned it from the Discovery Channel. So, you know, you get the sense that the TV's doing a lot of the parenting for her. That's true. And, and you're right, David. I forgot about that. The guy in the Dracula mask shoots her and it grazes her arm. But again, she reacts like Dominic Toretto, like someone shushed her in a movie theater. And that's the impetus for her to go over and stake the Dracula guy in the heart. What if he was a Dracula? What if he actually was a vampire? Let's explore that. Gunpowder Milkshake too. But this car fight is fun. I mean, again, it's not your typical like driving around, firing out a window because Sam's arms are still not at 100%. The young girl, Emily, has to drive. So now she's telling Emily like, you know, hard left, hard right. And their car's like uh, just blazing around this parking garage. People are firing at each other. There's a couple really cool POV shots from the bad guy's car. Thought it was fun. And it, it did not overstay its welcome for sure. It's inventive. It's unique. That's all you really want. Maybe not. that's not all you literally want, but this one worked for me. Uh, like you said, there's some really good POV shots. There's one moment where one of the goons backs into uh, an upraised forklift and one of the passengers gets decapitated. You don't see the decapitation, but at one point you get a pan over from the front seat to the back seat, and it's just a quick pan to the forklift and the decapitated head. I didn't mark out, but I had so much fun with that. I thought about being in the theater with other people discovering that brief instant moment and just having a grand old time with it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was definitely unexpected. Like, oh, okay, that guy lost his head. I didn't even I didn't think it was going to happen. <laughs> but Sam and Emily make it out of there alive, and they make it to this location of the package, and then it turns out it's Sam's mom, Scarlett, played by Lena Headey, and they have a little reunion there. And you know, she's like, Mom, I haven't seen you in 15 years. And there's kind of a funny thing where – uh, Scarlett looks over at Emily and she's like, am I a grandmother? And Sam's like, oh, no, 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 no. But this scene, though, David, what, what were your thoughts on this mother-daughter reunion? Did you get any sort of emotional kind of story out of it? No, I didn't. It didn't add up for me. For the reasons we've already explained, where it's like, wait, she was, she's was she been gone for 15 years, but she lives in town? Like, she's just a few, she's been a few blocks away this whole time. But then also on top of that, you have the character of Sam or by extension, the actor of Karen Gillan, who is playing off of this. And so I guess, you know, as I'm saying this, she does a good job because for someone who is cool and reserved as you have to be as an assassin, but to be hit with this revelation that your mom is not only still alive, but has been here for, for, for 15 years, I think she actually does kind of hand it well, handle it well. I think I've talked myself into it. Well, what are your thoughts on this one, Mac? Yeah. Again, it didn't feel emotionally authentic to me. I mean, I get it. Like, look, Bad guys are showing up. They're quartering in on us. We don't necessarily have time to do like a full on like family therapy session here. But at the same time, you haven't seen your mom in 15 fucking years. 
and it did not feel like it. It, it. it didn't feel like the reactions were grounded at all. It just felt like, oh, this is the moment in the script where they reunite. We'll have a little bit of dialogue uh, about that. Like, oh, you turned out fine. It, it's fine. Okay, let's move on. We got to keep moving. They both accepted the situation a little too quickly. I'm not saying that it should not have gotten where it was, uh, especially because, yeah, maybe Sam is a little bit emotionally stunted, you know, from the fact that she was abandoned and quickly forced to be an assassin. I don't know. It felt a little flat to me. After the the initial reunion at the front door and then they go inside, they cut to Scarlet listening to the story of Sam and Emily's evening. And all we get is... Now, that is an interesting story. You just glossed over 15 years and that's an interesting story? But while this is going on, you're right. Nathan told Big Jim McAllister her location. So now McAllister's mob goons are closing in. So Scarlet is going to lead Sam and Emily to safety through a magical dryer. With nowhere else to turn, Scarlet and Sam seek help from the librarians, but not before some reconciliation. Like I said, it's Sam and Scarlet catching up. This is a good exposition dump. Like, this is a good time to use the bathroom. Maybe go ahead to the merch table, check out the t-shirts. You really don't need this chunk. We do get a real quick shot here. Uh, I think McAllister calling his nephew. In this quick shot, we see the nephew is on a bus. It looks like kind of an interior of a school bus. It's like loaded with thugs. And so the fact that you get this like real quick shot of like, oh, fuck, a lot of dudes are coming. Because that is so fast, that edit, I thought that was really cool. So Emily's watching TV while Sam and Scarlett are commiserating over over their lives. And Emily sees a security feed, a security camera feed of the outside. And she sees uh, McAllister's men are, are on their way. So so Sam's like, all right, mom, you got a plan, right? And Scarlett doesn't have a plan. And Sam seems thrown by this. She's like, you're a planner. You're the planner. You always have a plan. And I'm like, Mac, does she? I, I don't. Do you get the sense that, that Scarlett is a planner? I mean, I got a sense that maybe back in the day she was a planner. I don't know. I I, I don't know what their relationship is at this point. And so I, I don't really know how to, to comment on that. I'm a, I don't have anything to grasp onto because they're not really giving us anything. When they go downstairs, the elevator opens and there's the entire McAllister army. And Sam whips out her hand to shoot them, but her arms are still paralyzed and her gun goes flying and just knocks some dude in the head. Like physically the gun hits him in the head. And then this is where I really got the Gary Oldman vibe from Gary Young Douche. Because he lets out a scream. And again, it's got a touch of Gary in it. He's putting some effort in there. No, I, I, credit to this actor. I can't, it, it is not on the same page that I'm looking at right now. But uh, I did enjoy his performance throughout this thing. Okay, so from there, they're going to narrowly avoid Gary Young Douche and the army. They're going to keep going down into the basement. And uh, Scarlet's going to lead them to a dryer. But this is no ordinary dryer, Mac. This is going to be a hollowed out dryer that leads to... Uh, who knows where in fact scarlet's like it's fucking narnia just get in but as they're crawling through this dryer to who knows where it's probably meow wolf david i think it's meow wolf in santa fe there is going to be a, a crazy art installation on the other side of that dryer that's neat as hell but sam looks back at scarlet and she's like no plan huh it's like does this count as a plan to you like not every successful escape or not every successful thing means that there was a plan there. I, I don't know. This didn't work for me. If assassins are coming to kill us and I go, no, don't worry, David, I have a plan. And then the plan is like, oh, there's a gun in my Ford Taurus. You're like, that's not a plan. That's not a plan. That's just a thing. But as they escape through this dryer, they're like running around this building. And at some point they bump into a chef. And first of all, it's a chef. It's the middle of the night. What's this chef doing? To me, this kind of violated the Lonely World rules a little bit, but I got a quick punch up here. And uh, another movie that I would have compared this to, I forgot earlier, was the movie Snowpiercer. 
Did you see Snowpiercer uh, starring uh, Chris Evans, David? I did. I loved Snowpiercer. So as they go through the different cars of this train, the different like train cars are kind of almost impossible, right? Like they, they go to one and all of a sudden there's like a rave happening in it. If you bump into random people in Lonely World, the nighttime Lonely World, I need those moments to be weird. So instead of bumping into like a chef, I need you to bump into like some other like kind of compartmentalized dream that someone else is going through. Like, oh, you walk in there and it's a it's a bunch of dudes playing Russian roulette. Or you walk in there and it's a bunch of dudes playing strip poker and they're all down to their underwear or something. I don't know why it has to be games of chance. It doesn't have to be. Like if the chef is cooking somebody, maybe he's about to like kill and cook a person like a Hannibal Le- Lecture, I think, right? Because he's only lecturing people. Was that his name? He was a professor. Yeah. Hannibal Lecture. That's right. But you're absolutely right. Like for this movie to have neon bowling alleys and fluorescent hospitals, for them to escape this dryer and just end up in like an abandoned mall, it felt like. It felt like the world was fake and we see the bowels of the world. Like we see the operating tunnels and corridors that help keep the world running like it was almost like the end of the game when michael douglas walks into that cafeteria he's like oh shit this is everybody i've met over the past week like it it felt not real or not connected to the world we're seeing do you like the movie the game i did i liked it a lot yeah me too i didn't see that twist coming i bought it 100 i think it's gonna happen to me one day but yes our hero sam scarlet and emily they do make it to the library they do meet up with the librarians and you definitely get a sense here david that there's a history between uh scarlet and the librarians and maybe even a romantic history between anna may angela bass's character and Scarlett, played by, you know, of course, Lena Headey. And in my small amount of research, I saw that Angela Bass and Lena Headey was like, yeah, we talked about our characters and we definitely decided that they had a relationship there. You know, so when Scarlett abandoned Sam, she also abandoned Anna Mae. And so this is like kind of like a jilted lover thing or whatever. And some of the criticism I saw about this movie, David, is that it was not gay enough. I honestly, I get this a little bit because, you know, they talk about this like uh, like a gay found family, how this movie has that as a subtext. And it, the fact that, hey, it's 2021. There's no need for this to be subtext anymore. We got enough subtext. Let's make it text. Like, yeah, you can go ahead and be subtle about it, but also make it clear instead of just, I don't know. I, I, I get that because when I finished the movie, I was like, well, what is the deal with these two? Like, I didn't know. But, you know, it's 2021, man. Let's fucking let's fucking know. Yeah, there's a difference between making it subtle and making it a secret. And it feels like everything this movie gets close to pulls back because it wants to keep it a secret. And that's not that's not fair. That's not fair to the characters. It's not fair to the audience. But I'm right there with you. But Mac, so the McAllister mob goons, they're making their way to the library. Sam's going to choose to fight them alone. This is going to be an action set piece we'll call Violent Library, Wave 1. Sam is able to hold her own for a while, but then a new wave of goons is approaching, and it's up to Scarlet and the librarians to offer their services. So Mac, do the goons know about this library system? Like, this seems like a poorly kept secret. I guess a lot like the diner. What is this universe, Mac? Yeah, I get a sense that the this gang does not know about this library. I don't know who the library caters to, because like in the John Wickiverse, it seems like everyone knows how that hotel works. I can't remember its name right now. The Continental. Oh, the Con thank you, David. You are you've proven yourself a wickhead once again. Ah, that didn't sound right. Stop calling me that. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will. We just watched a movie not too long ago, Hard Boiled, where someone pulled out a Shakespeare book. And it had a weapon in it. And David, as Sam is going through all the books in his library, pulling out all these different things, 
David, are there hidden guns in most libraries? You know, that makes sense because I have no idea how these places make their money. You know, they don't charge for books. <laughs> Wait, libraries? Yeah, no, you just check. You can- Take them out for free, and you can bring them back like in a few weeks or whatever. And then that's when they charge. No, they never charge you. Oh my god, how do these librarians make money? I don't understand. Oh, they're gun runners. There it is. <laughs> but the books are checking out. It's like uh, it's like Charlotte Bronte, Virginia Woolf. These seem like books people might actually get at a library. That's dangerous. But like a giant Shakespeare book, is someone going to the library? I guess that's where you would get it. Isn't that shit online by now? It's online, but if it's a book that big, you're not. Checking checking it out you're just keeping it in the library and putting it back on the shelf i guess my question to you is david what books would you hide guns in a library where do you think the it would be safe from your average looky-loo not discovering it oh man probably like an economics book probably just like you know uh something that's gonna make my eyes glaze over but it's also gonna be giant enough that's interesting yeah because that made me think of economics for dummies you know those like giant thick books that like try to over explain things mm-hmm. uh so maybe it would be like a for dummies book that something doesn't exist anymore like uh the nintendo virtual book boy or like windows millennium edition for dummies or something like that like who the fuck would <laughs> needs to know this and you open the side and there's like a saturday night special in there pow, 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 pow. i'm into it but mac this is going to be where sam decides to take on uh McAllister's men by herself she sends everybody down to the basement what do you think of this action set piece mac what do you think of the action coming up i'm a fan i think this is a very solid fight scene from karen gillen she clearly had some fight training and she did well at it and i like this setup i like this conce- uh conceder concept what i'm not smart of using the found book items because the thing is is like sam does not know her way around this library so she's like opening up a book this is cash in here she opens up another book and there's like a uh, a gold brick and so now she has to like use the gold brick to fight off these bad guys for someone who likes it when uh fight scenes incorporate the environment this movie saw me coming david because i was loving it it's the inventiveness like you said you know for her to pull out a gold bar but still use it in combat to you know for her to pull uh another book off the shelf and there's a switchblade and she uses that to stab one guy's knife to himself yeah this is great however though i mentioned the the stabbing the guy's gun to himself where's the bonus kill where's the he panics and pulls the trigger on the gun and shoots somebody else like one kills cool you know what's cooler two kills Uh, damn it that would have been awesome or if he uh, blew his own head off that i also would have been on board with that but sam gets into a little bit of trouble here but don't worry about it scarlet comes flying in to save the day and i do mean flying david she does like this all out like just Going for it, flat out leap, gun in each hand, John Wu style, bicka, 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 bicka. She gets horizontal. Uh, she is parallel with the ground. This is dopey, but it's not unsatisfying because this is the world that this movie has established. It just wants those cool moments. So in that context, I'm going to buy this as a cool moment. Yeah, because she lands on her feet, which doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible to go like horizontal <laughs> and then like just land on your feet like nothing's ever happened. And then I was like, well, Mac, what do you want her to do? Do you want her to like crash land on the ground and go rolling? And it's like, no, because that, that's almost kind of funny. And these people aren't, she's not bad at her job. We don't want to like show her as like kind of stupid. But I was like, what if she hit the ground? Because Sam was already on the ground, right? So what if Scarlet leapt in the air? Instead of a perfect landing, she hits the ground and slides over to Sam. And then she's like slides to where they're like shoulder to shoulder, like looking at each other. That would have been a really cute moment. That punch up's for free. You get that one for free. But this is going to be where Scarlet comes to Sam's aid. They're going to take over the library together. But meanwhile, in the basement, you've got the three librarians. They're loading up their van. They're getting ready to go. But anime and Florence decide, you know what? We should probably go up and help uh, Sam and Scarlett. So Madeline, you stay here with Emily. We're going to go up there. And there's a real brief moment where Florence leans in 
and whisper something in Madeline's ear. Mac, I, I think we were just talking about this, but what, what's going on with this whisper? I don't fucking know. And apparently, David, no one else does. Like the producers and the director knew, and he told Michelle Yao and he told Carla Gugino what the character said, but they didn't tell anyone else. He thinks the director thinks that the mystery of what uh, she said is more interesting than actually telling us. I disagree. First of all, what did you think about this? I was frustrated because it did feel like a tender moment. It did feel like there was an intimacy between Florence and Madeline, but by not exploring it, by just leaving it as a tease, it almost feels disrespectful. Let's say that is the director's conceit, that it's more telling to not know what they're saying. But in 2021, in, in this day and age that we're living in, to see two very strong screen presences like Michelle Yeoh and Carla Gugino engage in a relationship together, I think that would have been so much more powerful and so much more satisfying that to just hint at it almost does more of a disservice than not touching it at all. Yeah, I'm right on board. But so did you have a theory as to what their relationship is or what she said to her, et cetera? I think she said, I love you. <laughs> I, I really think it was just as simple as that. I think it was just an expression of affection. I'm right there with you. And what I think is is I don't think they are romantic with each other, but I think they were. I think they were people that had a relationship, it burned hot, and now they're just co-workers. You kind of get the idea that Michelle Yao's character is very reserved, and you kind of get the idea that Carla Gugino's character is very sweet, but she's almost like hesitant to show that sweetness. And I think it's because they're exes. And I think what, what Florence said to Madeline, in the context being that we're, we might die here, just she's like, you know what, I always loved you. Or like, I, you're, you know, I've never stopped or something like that. So yeah, I think it's an I love you but I think it's coming from a surprise place of like, I know we had a falling out or we cheated on each other like crazy. I don't know. <laughs> that, that there was some real emotion being carried off there. But I had to make that up, movie. Mm -hmm. You could have given us a little taste and I still would have had to make that up, but I would have not felt like fan fiction. For sure, yeah. But David, when the librarians decide to go into battle here, Angela Bassett's like, all right, it's ass kicking time. But David, she doesn't deliver one badass line here. She delivers like three badass lines. Let's play the the, the clip here and, and, and we'll count how many sort of like, what I'm talking about, David, is like, let's say you have a shotgun. It's a line you give right before you cock that shotgun, like kick open the door, right? Let's count how many lines Angela Bassett gets in here. Ends now. Madeline, finish getting the van ready. Florence, you and I are going up there to thin the herd. All right, that's one. We're gonna bring the sky down on them motherfudging heads. There's two. All in favor? Aye. 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 Motion carried. And I'll count that as three. There we go. That's, uh, we get it. You're badass. All right. We get it. But Mac, it's time for Violent Library Wave Part 2. Sam and Scarlet take the main library while Florence and Anna May clear out the kids sections. That's the Enchanted Forest and the NeverEnding Ocean. Madeline has the basement covered and Emily protected. Until Virgil, a.k.a. Gary Youngdouche, gets off a bullshit lucky shot, tagging Madeline in the upper chest. No thank you, movie. So Virgil comes here. He's like leads uh, the wave two of the McAllister goons. He's kind of talking to him a little bit here. What'd you, what kind of vibes do you get off of Virgil, David? <laughs> he's evil. He's a slime. I'll tell you what. Um, before he makes it down to the basement, he has an interaction with Sam and Scarlet where, you know, where he's kind of uh, having a standoff with them. And he's he's getting in his evil shots where he's like, you know, don't let me don't let me catch you because, you know, I'll shoot you in the stomach and then we'll really have some fun. Like 
you know, setting up this torture without being explicit or overt about it. So this movie's doing a really good job of establishing this guy as a creep and a sleaze, but it's a creep and a sleaze that I'm really into. I, I cannot explain it. I do like his his eyebrow acting here. You know, he's chomping on a uh, toothpick, looking sleazy and kind of casual. Reminded me a little bit of a certain actor, whose name I forget. He looks over at his goons and gives like a raised eyebrow, and then he looks over at some other goons and then nods his head the other way to like sort of launch their attacks. And it is like a little kind of subtle thing. But yeah, this guy is sleazy and young, but he does seem like very capable. Like he, he seems like a legitimate threat, not like a physical threat, like, oh, this guy's going to you know, kick a lot of ass, but he does seem like a, a, a force of violence that needs to be reckoned with. So that's going to be going on in the basement. Meanwhile, you've got Sam and Scarlet. Anime and Florence are coming to the rescue, which is good. And, and you know, knock, no knock on the movie, but there's just something about the Sam and Scarlet wave right here in the library that feels very plain. But when Anime and Florence show up, everything ratchets up. Everyone gets their moment in this next chunk of the movie. This is spectacular. I'm really into this. Yeah, so Anime and Florence each emerge from a different kids section, the Enchanted Forest and the Neverending Ocean, and they emerge on these balconies. Florence, Michelle Yao's character, she shows up at the balcony. She's got a very big machine gun. And what does she say here? <laughs> she goes, hey, dum-dums, and then just starts mowing them down. I loved it. I loved it as well. I really like the hey, dum-dums, and then murdered people. I don't know if that's from something else or whatever, but I, I was a fan. And then on the other balcony, you've got uh, you've got Anna Mae, and she's like, hey, idiots. Pulls the tabs on some smoke grenades, throws them over. Not as great as dum-dums, but still pretty darn great. Yeah, I mean, there, you got to heighten. If you're going to go dum-dums, you can't just go down to idiots. But it, it is funny, because what do we call the bad guys here so far? Boneheads, dum-dums, idiots. We got a real kind of like, you know, not calling them like, hey, fuck nuts or something like yeah. that. You know, shit balls. I don't know. The fact that they're calling them these just like euphemisms for stupid, the, the kind of stuff you'd hear like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, I, I thought that was charming. Well, David, everyone has their distinct weapons, right? Like Florence has a chain. An anime, I think, has some sort of like clubs. What weapon does Madeline have? What what weapon does she pull out? She's gonna pull out a goddamn Gatling gun, Mac. It's gonna come out from the top of the of the van, and and uh, that's gonna be her position. She's just gonna mow everybody down that comes next to her. And she's got Virgil pinned down, and we've seen Virgil do this thing earlier where he just kind of reaches his hand over, kind of behind him, and just you know fires off uh, a clip, you know, not really looking. Just total bullshit shots, right? He does this towards Madeline, except. He fucking tags her. He shoots her like right, kind of like in the collarbone area. And I gotta say, what, what the fuck? Yeah, a lucky shot. Especially, she's got a Gatling gun. Like, there's no, it, it seems impenetrable, but he gets a shot off on her. I was surprised that we never explored the possibility that Emily could catch a stray because you see the bullet holes have made their way through the van. Like, there are rounds getting in, but... Never once do we express any sort of concern. That's fine with me. And so we're about to hit the wave three of this action set piece of uh, Violent Library. And the reason why it feels like a different part to me is because at some moment, someone with the librarians, Scarlet and Sam, they've like cleared away most of the bad guys. And then the bad guys that are left, it's kind of just like one-on-one, -on -one, kind of like very hands-on, dirty fighting. Because McAllister's goons at this point have been reduced to some, I guess, level bosses. And the fighting, though, definitely does get dirtier. Virgil, a.k.a. Gary Young Douche, outlasts Madeline, runs off with Emily. Sam, Scarlet, and the librarians make it down to the basement just in time to say goodbye to Madeline, who fucking dies, David. Not fair. Not fair and not fun. Yeah, you know, especially since 
everyone's doing their job really well. Anime's kicking ass. Florence is kicking ass. Sam and Scarlet are kicking ass. Madeline was kicking ass, but I guess we've got to lose somebody in the equation, so we lose Madeline. Scarlet's got these knife guns, you know, they're pistols with some uh, daggers on the end of them. She's getting some really good usage out of those. She, you know, she's stabbing one guy and shooting through that guy to another guy. You've got Florence in the Enchanted Forest strangling some dude with a chain. That's very effective too, to the point where I wanted her to strangle the guy's head off. Like his head flops around in a way that I thought it could just very go bloop, but it it did not. Uh, This is all satisfying. Yeah, and when these, like, I say fake level bosses start showing up, because, like, for example, this big dude shows up with a big beard, and I forget what weapon he has, like a machete or something like that. And it's like, whoa, have we been, who is this? Have we been waiting for this guy? <laughs> like, you know, you look at the the Raid 2, the way it laid a little bit of groundwork for those level bosses, for Bat Boy and Hammer Girl to show up. Uh, yeah, when this guy with the big beard showed up, I was like, oh, do we, it would have been nice to know that... He was a threat, I guess. Yeah, oh, Zangief is here. But uh, yeah, we don't get any of that. But Virgil, the level boss, like he runs out of ammo. Madeline is shot, but she's not down. So Virgil's like, all right, you got me. And he pulls out some fucking uh, brass knuckles. And Madeline's like, oh, yeah, well, guess what? I got Tommy Tomahawk. And they get into a fight. And so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, If it's hand to hand now, Madeline's totally going to win and like kill this guy. But then later we check on Madeline down the basement and she's just like slumped against a wall and Emily's gone. So I didn't get the sense that Virgil won their fight. I got the sense that basically like Madeline just like couldn't fight anymore. And Virgil's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And I'm appreciative to the movie for that because Virgil's reaching into his pockets. He pulls out some nuts. The reveal on this one, by the way, man, I'm, I'm very much into Virgil, but when we get back to Madeline, she's not bloodied. You know, she doesn't have bruises on her face or anything like that. So you do get the sense that maybe she just gave up, you know, she, her body gave out. And Virgil saw the opportunity to take Emily and run off. Yeah, and you'd be like, oh, why didn't he do murder? Because he's, he's such a terrible person. It's like, well, yeah, okay, but there's also four heavily armed super warriors uh, that are, are coming after him. But yeah, this fight, even though it it still is just like, oh, the same people are fighting in the same location, the fight does seem to get like dirtier and more personal. I, I, and that's what I said earlier about it. I think the fight spilled well in this movie. By the time we reach these final level bosses, there's no more shooting anyone. Everything is like up close, stabbing and cutting. I like how bloody Sam is getting, but I kind of wanted her to get like bloodier. Like basically when she showed up at the end, the white sleeves of that satin jacket, I wanted them to be mostly red. Just the fact that just showing what a hell that she went through. So uh, I do like it. And even Florence gets in an interesting kill here as well. Oh my gosh. So Florence is going to be up on the balcony. She's going to strangle a dude with some chains and then jump off the balcony, basically pulling the guy up to string him up and hang him. This is going to be a markout moment. Just the way it was shot, the slow motion leap down. It's Michelle Yeoh. She's hanging some dude. No, how do you, how do you lose with this? It was great. I liked it, but Madeline is dead. Now they got to, these women have to mourn. They got to mourn. They're going to have a quick funeral for Madeline. But then after that, Sam is going to agree to meet with Jim McAllister at the diner and trade herself for Emily's safety. With no guns allowed at the diner, it's Sam and Emily's best chance for survival. But with none of the customers allowed to carry, the diner becomes target practice for our heroes, who have disguised themselves as waitresses and are here to lay waste to everyone in the McAllister gang. Let's go, Max. So... When the rest of the librarians go down to the basement and see Madeline down there, but we also know that all of McAllister's guys are dead. I'm thinking, there's 23 minutes left in this movie. What on earth could they possibly? And then you find out that 
Emily has been taken. So we're going to fill those 23 minutes. Yeah, so Virgil calls and he's like, hey, uh, my uncle says that dismembering you would help him uh, reach some solace for the fact that his dead son, if you want to see this little girl alive, meet at the diner. And the surviving librarians and Scarlet are like, don't do it, Sam. We don't, we don't have a plan for this. And Sam's like, I got to do it. I got to do it anyway. But David, this funeral that they're having for her, first of all, it was outdoors. Boo. What happened to the, it's kind of like morning too, like dawn. Go back to Nighttown. Go back to Lonely World Nighttown, David. But then also this funeral couldn't have waited. Like it's daytime now. And it was nighttime when last they saw Emily, the kidnapped girl. So I guess it's okay to just take a few hours detour and go bury your friend. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed a little weird, but Sam is on her own. She shows up at the diner again. There's Rose looking uh, as fresh as she did in the flashback. Yeah, this is this is very effective when Sam finally shows up at the diner to turn herself in because you see McAllister in one booth, you see Virgil and Emily in another. The restaurant is littered with what's left of McAllister's men. This works for me, but there's something not working for me, and it is the diner itself, and it is the rules of the diner because you know, as as we mentioned before, everyone is rule abiding in this universe, and if the rules of the diner are no guns allowed, that's fine. But at the behest of whom, Mac? Like, who owns this diner? Who's making this rules? And more importantly, who's making this rules that these people actually respect? Yeah, you get a sense that if they broke the rules, that someone at the diner would then force them to leave. So I'm assuming the Rose is packing or that there's more there's more people in the, the back, maybe kitchen staff that have weapons as well. We don't ever see that, but I, I, I'm just assuming. And David, personally, I'm assuming that because that's how it works in John fucking Wick. But Sam is going to sit down and have a, a conversation with Jim. Jim is going to monologue before he he does whatever he's going to do. Which, by the way, we talked about this a few weeks ago with The Road Warrior, where we mentioned that there are movies that know how to convey terror without being terrible. I think Jim McAllister does a really good job in this movie, and, and particularly in, the, in this scene, where he's conveying the anger that he has towards Sam. He's conveying what he's going to do to her. But he never, again, he's never overt. He never mentions anything, but... I'm watching this movie thinking, this guy's this guy's bad news. Yeah, at some point, Sam goes, please let the girl go. And he's like, yeah, I'll let her go after she watches what I do to you. And she's like, please, I'll do anything. And he goes, oh, don't, don't start begging yet. There'll be time for that later. Which is a fucked up line, but fucked up effective. And you see, David, that this diner is full, by the way. Every other table is taken with one of McAllister's goons. And as McAllister starts to monologue for Sam here about his son, he starts off and he's like, you know, uh, I consider myself a feminist. And then tells a story about what it's like to raise daughters. Oh my God, Mac, this is amazing. I love this so much because it is so wrongheaded. You know, movies have done a really good job lately of establishing villains that you kind of relate to, you know, like a Killmonger, where what he's doing, there's, there's almost an honor to it. There's almost respect to it. So to have a villain like Jim McAllister, who's giving the speech about how he he's always considered himself a feminist and it has to do with his how he doesn't understand his four daughters, but he loves his one son who's now dead. I wish more movies would have this. I wish more movies would have a villain monologue where you're like, oh, just fucking kill this guy already. Yeah, I kind of remember that internet set up like, tell me a blank without saying you're a blank. This is like, tell me you're a misogynist without saying I'm a misogynist. He's like, I love my girls, but... They whisper to each other and I don't understand what's going on with them. And they have those, they're dark jokes, those evil, those witches, they turn into 
cats when you don't look at them. <laughs> but they're evil and they rip your heart out. But then I had a boy, oh, a sweet, simple idiot boy. Men are so, you know, we're so straightforward. We're not like women. Men don't have emotions. We could just talk to each other. And I love my son. <laughs> and you killed him. It was great because like I've considered myself feminist. And I was like, and then I'll spend the next 60 seconds showing you that I'm definitely not one. But Sam's listening to this. She's taking it in stride. You know, in her mind, she is defeated. She's resigned herself to whatever this guy is going to say, whatever this guy is going to do. But in between all of this, she does take a moment to apologize. To just, you know, for what it's worth. I'm very sorry about the loss of your son, Mac. Are you okay with this? I don't know. Because the way she said it sounded legit. Like she was legit sorry over the loss of uh, his son. But it's like, you met his son, you killed him. He's a fucking piece of shit gun thug, like the rest of them. Like, why? She could have said it like, look, I'm sorry about the loss of your son, but don't take it out on this little girl. But the way she said it made me think that she was actually sorry. It's like, Karen Gillan, you are you sold that too well. Like, back up the acting on that just a little bit. I don't know. It, it was odd. But then, David, something happens here where you see, uh, you don't see the person's face, but a, a server comes up, a, a waitress, and she's like, hey, what well, can I, you guys ready to order? Big Jim McAllister's like, I said we don't want anything. And she's like, you sure you don't want something? And he's like, if I say no one more time, I'm going to click, clack. What? You turn around, David, that's not an ordinary, that's not Rose. That's fucking Scarlet. She's wearing a waitress uniform. She's got a gun. David, in the movie John Wick, what is the inciting incident that allows John Wick to then go ahead and kill, I don't know, 200 people in that movie? His, his dog got killed. That is, in, in my mind, an unforgivable crime. However, David, I propose a John Wick movie where the inciting incident is just uh, somebody is rude to waitstaff. Because I think if someone <laughs> threatens a member of waitstaff, then that waitstaff can then go murder 300 gang members. And I'd be like, well, that, that gang wrote their permission to die slips. They wrote their permission slips because anyone who's that rude to someone just doing their job at a, at a, a thankless diner job, uh, that person obviously deserves to be have their bones ground into dust and their family forgotten, right? McAllister's done a pretty good job of just waving his permission slip around throughout the movie. And so to have it taken by by the waitress at the end, it was very satisfying. I mean, he might as well be like, fuck off, waitress. Also, here's some racist things I'll say real quick. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's running up the score. He is the most killable person in this movie. But yeah, David, it's not just Scarlet with a gun. It's all the librarians, all the remaining ones. So you've so you've got Florence taking the door. You've got anime also there. I guess they gave Rose a gun because I heard her rack a, a shotgun. But they've got McAllister's men. McAllister's men didn't bring guns, so they're literally dead to rights. Yeah, it was a little way too fucking easy to sneak up on these guys. But I didn't not buy it. I just was like, yep, you're stupid. You didn't think this was going to happen. And it did because all your guys are like sitting here and their tables. No one's like... uh watching the kitchen staff because i mean why would they you know they they think this diner is a neutral place and you know you make an assumption you what's the expression if you make an assumption you get murdered in a diner and that happens in this so after sam leaves david we're going slow motion we got one i don't know if this is officially a one -er or whatever what they call it with a uh, one unbroken shot but we get a slow-mo tracking shot here where our three librarians kill everyone i thought this shot was great I thought it was phenomenal. It's not often that movies decide, hey, you know what? Let's not end with a shootout. Let's end with a straight up massacre. This is the librarians against nobody. It is against a running crowd. The slow motion is very cool. The song choice is very cool. Everyone has their moment, but they catch anime in particular. 
She's behind the counter. She grabs a goon's head. She smashes it onto the counter where there happens to be a, a milkshake glass, smashes his head in the glass. I marked out. This is awesome. Her her face is so full of joy and rage. And I don't know. I'm so into it. Yeah. When the guy's head pops back off, off the counter, uh, it's gushing blood out of it, which I don't know if that would happen that fast, but it was definitely a lot of fun. I marked out during the sequence too, but for some reason it was when Florence Michelle Yao, she gets like a little too close to another person, but like closer than you'd want to comfortably be shooting someone. It's like, you know, hand-to-hand fighting distance, but she still pep, pep, pep unloads on them. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, GPM shake. Uh, but yes, Gary Young Douche dives out of an open window and as they shoot him, as you see, he's like flying through the window. He, a couple squibs go off in his back. He gets tagged in the back a couple times. Is Gary Young Douche dead, David? Or we might see him in Gunpowder Milkshake too. Ooh, I would like to see him in Gunpowder Milkshake too. But for all intents and purposes, when you see the entry and exit wound on a character, I'm going to go ahead and say they're dead. But the sequence ends. Our heroes have prevailed. The McAllister threat has been neutralized. It is now time for an epilogue or epilogue. However you want to say it. An epilogue. Uh, so Sam is going to make one last threat to Nathan and vows to hunt down everyone in the firm. Then our heroes load up their van and head down the coast. That's how we're going to end this movie. David, as you know, I'm part of a secret society called DADS. And it's an acronym. Uh, and the first D also stands for DADS. It's DADS Against Dream Sequences, David. Because we see that Sam is now recovering in the cabin that they went to to have Madeline's funeral. And as she wakes up from her nap, she looks over and it's Emily with a gun. And Emily shoots Sam to get revenge because Sam killed uh, Emily's dad, which she did tell her about at some point in the movie. But David, no, it was a fake dream sequence. I fucking hate dream sequences like this. Oh, you thought it was one thing. Ah, it's a dream. Get out of here. We're just we're just fucking joshing or whatever. It's fucking cheap and I hate it. I'm a, a proud member of dads. But now, David, you're right. We're stuck with this problem with the firm. They still want Sam dead. So Sam has to tell the firm to fuck off. And how does she, how do they go about doing that? Well, she recruits Emily to pretend she's a Girl Scout and knock on Nathan's door. Uh, Nathan hears that there's a Girl Scout at the door. So what does he do? He goes and grabs a gun, puts it in his robe. Does he do that for everybody who comes to the door? Or did he? Do you think he knew that that Emily or Sam was coming for him? Uh, I think he was expecting it not to be a Girl Scout. And then he was like, oh, it's an actual Girl Scout. Like, so I, but also we're in assassin world here. So yeah, maybe he does it every time. But yeah, you know, this is, this is satisfying. This sets up. If there is going to be a sequel, this sets up the sequel. Sam lets her intentions known. Hey, I'm coming after all these guys. Let them know or leave me alone. So I'm I'm ready. Yeah, Emily gives a note to Nathan that says, like, open up your heart or look inside your heart or something like that. And Paul Giamatti, Nathan looks down and he sees that red dot of the sniper's, you know, scope on his chest. And then I guess he gets a phone call. I don't even remember who gives a shit. But <laughs> Sam tells him, like, you know, leave me alone or I'll hunt you down. David, we've completely given up here on Nighttime Town, Lonely World, because we're out in a very, like, this is a real, this is not a set. Nathan's home, like, clearly that's the outdoors. His home is, like, well-staffed. It's like, wait, whoa, now now we can afford extras? So, yeah, that was a little bit of a bummer. However, we return to Lonely World because we cut to all, all our heroes, all of our friends, in a van that's clearly not driving outside. Clearly, they're on, like, a set. And like listening to some music and look, they're going to be like little family again. And they go off in the distance and where are they going to arrive, David? I don't know if they arrive at Gunpowder Milkshake 2. I'll tell you this. I will be there. I would be excited to see a sequel to this movie. But that, David, is the very last sip of Gunpowder Milkshake. 
All right, David, how many moms did you have while watching this movie? How many mark out moments? Not counting Scarlet, I had three. How about you? I had three, too. Looks like we're three buddies. David, is this someone's favorite movie? It's just a matter of time. This movie's fun. This movie's creative. I think it'll be right up somebody's alley. How about you? I'm going to say sure. There's a lot to be filled in in this movie. A lot this movie leaves blank. And if someone likes it, I kind of feel like this is a movie that someone could fill in those other gaps. And because of that level of engagement, it could be their favorite movie. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. We're the Ultimate Script Doctors. Everybody knows. Uh, So how would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I want to give the villains more personality. I think we do a really good job of giving the heroes personality. We, We find them engaging. We want to follow them. But we really, with the exception of just Virgil's devil may care attitude, we really don't get a sense about any of these other villains. Give them personalities. Give them specialty weapons. Something to make him stand out. Don't drag this Russian uh, brute into the third act unaware. Like, build him up. Another note for me. Let's tease that sequel. I would have liked an end credit sequence where some old guy gets strangled with piano wire. Let's let's get those old guys running. You know what I mean? Let's look forward to a sequel. My third note. This might be uh, this might be asking too much. But hey, what's up with this diner? Like like you said, you know this jo- this movie does a really good job of leaving a blank template for you to build off of. So there is a lot of opportunity to create some really cool stories. I got to know what's up with this diner. I got to know who who owns it and why they run it like this. David, I I really like that idea of teasing a sequel. Because if you're like, what happened to Sam's dad, right? The uh, Scarlet's baby daddy. They're like, oh, well, Scarlet says he was murdered. And Scarlet was trying to figure out who murdered uh, Sam's dad. The reason why... Scarlet had to leave all those years ago is because Scarlet found out who killed Sam's dad. She got her revenge, but it was someone that she was not allowed to kill. And that's why she had to go into hiding, into exile. We were told that Sam's dad is dead, but we didn't see him. So maybe at the end of the movie, Nathan goes back inside his house and hear a voice go, who was that? Or is everything okay? And then Paul Giamatti's like, nah, it's just more problem with your daughter. And then we turn around, David, and oh my God, it's revealed who Sam's dad is. Now, the smart choice would be someone from the John Wick first and then tie these movies into it. Like, whoa, it's uh, Ian McShane or something like that. Or Lance Reddick, R.I. Power King. But I think, look, if Paul Giamatti's your bad guy, maybe go someone like uh, Nick Offerman. Uh, (laughs) Did you watch that episode of Last of Us? I haven't even watched the series, but I do want to watch it just for that episode. Depth of emotion in that man's big, wet, scared eyes. He uh, he can really pour it in there. No, I, I don't know who it would be, but... Somebody really, I mean, probably just go ahead, just make it the rock. Uh, How about that? All right, my punch ups uh, stick with Lonely World Nighttime Town. I like that vibe. I thought that was really cool. It gave this movie like a very dramatic air. I'd like to keep that. My biggest punch up, though, is make these pieces fit. Like the accountant in the beginning of the movie, whose daughter was being held for ransom by the Universal Monster Gang. Why? Why would that happen? If you could somehow figure out a way to make that all these events be part of one story, I think that would be awesome because that that just would like fit together. It didn't really feel like they tried. Well, David, please uh, join me in the Punch Mountain Video Store. So, David, we have three copies of Gunpowder Milkshake. Yes, physical copies, and we need to figure out where in the store to stock these things, David, because this is an all-action movie video store. So, what subsections of action, what particular shelves would you stock these movies in? 
The first copy is a slam dunk. I'm gonna put this one in Smashing the Patriarchy. All ladies, all the time, all kicking ass. Uh, the next two, I'm gonna put on actor shelves. This was a tough choice because everyone carries themselves really well in this movie, but I think in terms of who did the most impressive work in this movie and also who is going to have a more robust shelf in this video store. So my last two copies are gonna go to the Michelle Yeoh shelf and the Lena Headey shelf. I don't know if Lena Headey has enough action work that not on TV to justify a shelf. So I'm maybe going to put that third copy on like an assassin shelf. And look, if you want to put that copy on the Heaty shelf, you're the CSO, chief stock officer. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll defer to you. So maybe the assassin shelf is just like seasonal, maybe like uh, uh, SS September or something like that. We can bust it out and then there you go. You get a little shelf there of, a, of assassin movies. Also on that shelf, the movie Assassins. All right, David, we've come down to it. It's time to discover where Gunpowder Milkshake ranks on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movie. But before the mountain reveals the answer, where, David, would you put this movie in the current rankings? So just to remind people, one, two, and three right now on the summit is Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Made 2, Ratrix. And then at the base of mountain is Pastor 57, Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure. That's 29, 30, 31. And David, not even on the mountain itself, okay? At number 32, it's at the roadside diner that you stop at right before you go to the mountain because it's the you know it's the best place to get a meal before you go to the mountain and yes it's an assassin's only diner that's where you'll find the movie chappy yeah so for me this will be a solid middle and that's you know i hope this doesn't come across as a criticism it'll be surrounded by some very good company this is a fun movie it's got more pluses than minuses. Like the stuff I don't like about this movie isn't an enjoyment ender. It's not going to take me out of it. It's just stuff I would tweak here and there. Solid effort. Middle of the mountain, but I'm happy that it's on the mountain regardless. Well, what do you what are you thinking? You got any thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's kind of tough because I think the action in this movie is super fucking solid. I don't think this movie has like a legendary action set piece in it or legendary action moment. I do think all the action builds well. It's very fun engaging in and it's a little bit inventive at times. But I do think the story just kind of falls flat. It's like I said at the beginning, this movie is exactly what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be a fun action movie that I kind of like turned my brain off a little bit. But fortunately, unfortunately, that's exactly what it was. It was fun, but I do not feel like the story and the emotion fully supported it. But I am very interested to see where it lands because again, this action, very solid and a lot of fun. David, grab your milkshake because the, the rocks are falling off the mountain. The golden letters are shining out. And there we see the position of Gunpowder Milkshake being revealed on Punch Mountain. And it is currently number 18. That means 15 Pacific Rim, 16 Seven Samurai, 17 The Woman King, 18 Gunpowder Milkshake, followed by 19 Desperado and 20 Top Gun Maverick. Two very popular movies that is in front of David. But I, I got to say, I don't disagree with this ranking. I don't I I want to I I would like to see it higher but I can't make it make a justification it's some it's some stone cold movies around this it's it's in good company yeah it may not have the emotional highs of Top Gun Maverick it may not have that energy of Desperado but I feel like its vibe and its action sequences are fun enough to where it, it deserves that ranking if you disagree with the mounds rankings well first of all accept them that's the truth uh but no but we'd love to hear about it at punchmountain at gmail.com. What I'd love to hear more about is not necessarily is, oh, this movie, you ranked it too high. I'd like to hear about the movies that you feel like we didn't rank high enough. You know, positivity goes a long way. But also, thank you for listening. David, you hear that that, that horn? 
Is that Paul Giamatti? Get back here. Yeah, that's, that's Paul Giamatti's a sad mating call because he's there are no more Giamatti's in this world to mate. No, David, that's a horn calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes. We also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Anti-Defamation League. A leading anti-hate organization, the ADL's timeless mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Today, ADL continues to fight all forms of anti-Semitism and bias, using innovation and partnerships to drive impact. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Anti-Defamation League, and for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to our donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air, and by air, I mean podcast. For more information on the Anti-Defamation League or to donate directly to them, visit ADL.org. And that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain, folks. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain, or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up next week from 1999. And directed by Stephen Sommers, we're watching Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz in The Mummy. Looking forward to that, Mac. Never seen it. I'm a mummy dummy. Oh, shit. Let's have some fun. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.